Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to our content. Remember to follow us here on the platform. We prepared a graphic of the book with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps so you know everything about the book in minutes. This is Audible. Penguin Random House Audio presents Willpower Instinct, How Self-Control Works, Why It Matters, and What You Can Do to Get More of It, by Kelly McGonigal. Read for you by Walter Dixon. Introduction Welcome to Willpower 101. Whenever I mention that I teach a course on willpower, the nearly universal response is, Oh, that's what I need. Now more than ever, people realize that willpower, the ability to control their attention, emotions, and desires, influences their physical health, financial security, relationships, and professional success. We all know this. We know we're supposed to be in control of every aspect of our lives, from what we eat to what we do, say, and buy. And yet, most people feel like willpower failures, in control one moment but overwhelmed and out of control the next. According to the American Psychological Association, Americans name lack of willpower as the number one reason they struggle to meet their goals. Many feel guilty about letting themselves and others down. Others feel at the mercy of their thoughts, emotions, and cravings their lives dictated by impulses rather than conscious choices. Even the best controlled feel a kind of exhaustion at keeping it all together and wonder if life is supposed to be such a struggle. As a health psychologist and educator for the Stanford School of Medicine's Health Improvement Program, my job is to help people manage stress and make healthy choices. After years of watching people struggle to change their thoughts, emotions, bodies, and habits, I realized that much of what people believed about willpower was sabotaging their success and creating unnecessary stress. Although scientific research had much to say that could help them, it was clear that these insights had not yet become part of public understanding. Instead, people continued to rely on worn-out strategies for self-control. I saw again and again that the strategies most people used weren't just ineffective. They actually backfired leading to self-sabotage and losing control. This led me to create The Science of Willpower, a class offered to the public through Stanford University's Continuing Studies program. The course brings together the newest insights about self-control from psychology, economics, neuroscience, and medicine to explain how we can break old habits and create healthy habits, conquer procrastination, find our focus, and manage stress. It illuminates why we give in to temptation and how we can find the strength to resist. It demonstrates the importance of understanding the limits of self-control and presents the best strategies for training willpower. To my delight, the science of willpower quickly became one of the most popular courses ever offered by Stanford Continuing Studies. The first time the course was offered, we had to move the room four times to accommodate the constantly growing enrollment. Corporate executives, teachers, athletes, healthcare professionals, and others curious about willpower filled one of the largest lecture halls at Stanford. Students started bringing their spouses, children, and co-workers to class so they could share the experience. 
I had hoped the course would be useful to this diverse group, who came to the class with goals ranging from quitting smoking and losing weight to getting out of debt and becoming a better parent. But even I was surprised by the results. A class survey four weeks into the course found that 97% of students felt they better understood their own behavior, and 84% reported that the class strategies had already given them more willpower. By the end of the course, participants told stories of how they had overcome a 30-year addiction to sweets, finally filed their back taxes, stopped yelling at their children, stuck to an exercise program, and generally felt better about themselves and more in charge of their choices. Course evaluations called the class life-changing. The consensus of the students was clear. Understanding the science of willpower gave them strategies for developing self-control and greater strength to pursue what mattered most to them. The scientific insights were as useful for the recovering alcoholic as the email addict, and the self-control strategies helped people resist temptations as varied as chocolate, video games, shopping, and even a married co-worker. Students used the class to help meet personal goals such as running a marathon, starting a business, and managing the stress of job loss, family conflict, and the dreaded Friday morning spelling test. That's what happens when moms start bringing their kids to class. Of course, as any honest teacher will tell you, I learned a lot from my students as well. They fell asleep when I droned on too long about the wonder of a scientific finding, but forgot to mention what it had to do with their willpower challenges. They were quick to let me know which strategies worked in the real world and which fell flat, something a laboratory study can never tell you. They put creative spins on weekly assignments and showed me new ways for turning abstract theories into useful rules for everyday life. This audiobook combines the best scientific insights and practical exercises from the course, using the latest research and the acquired wisdom of the hundreds of students who have taken the class. To succeed at self-control, you need to know how you fail. Most books on changing behavior, whether it's a new diet plan or a guide to financial freedom, will help you set goals and even tell you what to do to reach them. But, if identifying what we wanted to change were sufficient, every New Year's resolution would be a success, and my classroom would be empty. Few books will help you see why you aren't already doing these things, despite knowing full well that you need to do them. I believe that the best way to improve your self-control is to see how and why you lose control. Knowing you are likely to give in doesn't, as many people fear, set yourself up for failure. It allows you to support yourself and avoid the traps that lead to willpower failures. Research shows that people who think they have the most willpower are actually the most likely to lose control when tempted. For example, smokers who are the most optimistic about their ability to resist temptation are the most likely to relapse four months later, and over-optimistic dieters are the least likely to lose weight. Why? They fail to predict when where, and why they will give in. They expose themselves to more temptation, such as hanging out with smokers or leaving cookies around the house. They're also most likely to be surprised by setbacks and give up on their goals when they run into difficulty. Self-knowledge, especially of how we find ourselves in willpower trouble, is the foundation of self-control. This is why both The Science of Willpower Course and this audiobook 
focus on the most common willpower mistakes we all make. Each chapter dispels a common misconception about self-control and gives you a new way to think about your willpower challenges. For every willpower mistake, we'll conduct a kind of autopsy. When we give in to temptation or put off what we know we should do, what leads to our downfall? What is the fatal error and why do we make it? Most important, we will look for the opportunity to save our future selves from this fate. How can we turn the knowledge of how we fail into strategies for success? At the very least, by the time you finish the audiobook, you will have a better understanding of your own imperfect but perfectly human behavior. One thing the science of willpower makes clear is that everyone struggles in some way with temptation, addiction, distraction, and procrastination. These are not individual weaknesses that reveal our personal inadequacies. They are universal experiences and part of the human condition. If this audiobook did nothing else but help you see the common humanity of your willpower struggles, I would be happy. But I hope that it will do far more, and that the strategies in this audiobook will empower you to make real and lasting changes in your life. How to Use This Audio Program Become a Willpower Scientist I'm a scientist by training, and one of the very first things I learned is that while theories are nice, data is better. So, I'm going to ask you to treat this audiobook like an experiment. A scientific approach to self-control isn't limited to the laboratory. You can, and should, make yourself the subject of your own real-world study. As you listen to this audiobook, don't take my word for anything. After I've laid out the evidence for an idea, I'm going to ask you to test that idea in your own life. Collect your own data to find out what is true and what works for you. Within each chapter, you'll find two kinds of assignments to help you become a willpower scientist. The first I call under the microscope. These prompts ask you to pay attention to how an idea is already operating in your life. Before you can change something, you need to see it as it is. For example, I'll ask you to notice when you are most likely to give in to temptation or how hunger influences your spending. I'll invite you to pay attention to how you talk to yourself about your willpower challenges, including what you say to yourself when you procrastinate and how you judge your own willpower failures and successes. I'll even ask you to conduct some field studies, such as sleuthing out how retailers use store design to weaken your self-control. With each of these assignments, Take the approach of a non-judgmental, curious observer, just like a scientist peering into a microscope, hoping to discover something fascinating and useful. These aren't opportunities to beat yourself up for every willpower weakness or to rail against the modern world for all its temptations. There is no place for the former, and I'll take care of the latter. You'll also find willpower experiments throughout each chapter. These are practical strategies for improving self-control based on a scientific study or theory. You can apply these willpower boosts immediately to real-life challenges. I encourage you to have an open mind about each strategy, even the ones that seem counterintuitive, and there will be plenty. They've been pilot-tested by students in my course, and while not every strategy works for everyone, these are the ones that earned the highest praise. The ones that sounded good in theory but embarrassingly flopped in real life you won't find them in these chapters. These experiments are a great way to break out of a rut and find new solutions for old problems. 
I encourage you to try different strategies and collect your own data about which help you the most. Because they are experiments, not exams, you can't fail, even if you decide to try the exact opposite of what the science suggests. After all, science needs skeptics. Share the strategies with your friends, family, and colleagues, and see what works for them. You'll always learn something, and you can use what you've learned to refine your own strategies for self-control. Your Willpower Challenge To get the most out of this audiobook, I recommend picking a specific willpower challenge to test every idea against. We all have willpower challenges. Some are universal. For example, thanks to our biological instinct to crave sugar and fat, we all need to restrain our urge to single-handedly keep the local bakery in business. But many of our willpower challenges are unique. What you crave, another person might be repulsed by. What you're addicted to, another person might find boring. And what you put off, another person might pay to do. Whatever the specifics, these challenges tend to play out in the same way for each of us. Your craving for chocolate is not so different from a smoker's craving for a cigarette or a shopaholic's craving to spend. How you talk yourself out of exercising is not so different from how someone else justifies not opening the past due bills and another person puts off studying for one more night. Your willpower challenge could be something you've been avoiding, what we'll call an I will power challenge, or a habit you want to break, an I won't power challenge. You could also choose an important goal in your life that you'd like to give more energy and focus to, an I want power challenge. Whether it's improving your health, managing stress, honing your parenting skills, or furthering your career. Because distraction, temptation, impulse control, and procrastination are such universal human challenges, the strategies in this audiobook will be helpful for any goal you choose. By the time you finish the audiobook, you'll have a greater insight into your challenges and a new set of self-control strategies to support you. Take your time. This audiobook is designed to be used as if you were taking my 10-week course. It's divided into 10 chapters, each of which describes one key idea, the science behind it, and how it can be applied to your goals. The ideas and strategies build on each other so that what you do in each chapter prepares you for the next. Although you could listen to this whole audio program in one weekend, I encourage you to pace yourself when it comes to implementing the strategies. Students in my class take an entire week to observe how each idea plays out in their own lives. They try one new strategy for self-control each week and report on what worked best. I recommend that you take a similar approach, especially if you plan to use this audiobook to tackle a specific goal, such as losing weight or getting control of your finances. Give yourself time to try out the practical exercises and reflect. Pick one strategy from each chapter whichever seems relevant to your challenge, rather than trying out 10 new strategies at once. You can use the 10-week structure of the book anytime you want to make a change or achieve a goal, just as some students have taken the course multiple times, focusing on a different willpower challenge each time. But if you intend to listen to the whole audio program first, enjoy, and don't worry about trying to keep up with the reflections and exercises as you go. Make a note of the ones that seem most interesting to you and return to them when you're ready to put the ideas into action. Let's begin.
Here's your first assignment. Choose one of the challenges for our journey through the science of willpower. Then, meet me in Chapter 1, where we'll take a trip back in time to investigate where this thing called willpower comes from and how we can get more of it. Under the Microscope Choose your willpower challenge. If you haven't already, now's the time to pick the willpower challenge to which you'd most like to apply the ideas and strategies in this audiobook. The following questions can help you identify the challenge you're ready to take on. I will power challenge. What is something that you would like to do more of, or stop putting off, because you know that doing it will improve the quality of your life? I won't power challenge. What is the stickiest habit in your life? What would you like to give up or do less of because it's undermining your health, happiness, or success? I want power challenge. What is the most important long-term goal you'd like to focus your energy on? What immediate want is most likely to distract you or tempt you away from this goal? Chapter 1. I will, I won't, I want. What willpower is and why it matters. When you think of something that requires willpower, what's the first thing that comes to mind? For most of us, the classic test of willpower is resisting temptation. Whether the temptress is a donut, a cigarette, a clearance sale, or a one-night stand. When people say, I have no willpower, what they really mean is, I have trouble saying no when my mouth, stomach, heart, or fill in your anatomical part, wants to say yes. Think of it as, I won't power. But saying no is just one part of what willpower is and what it requires. After all, just say no are the three favorite words of procrastinators and couch potatoes worldwide. At times, it's more important to say yes. All those things you put off for tomorrow or forever? Willpower helps you put them on today's to-do list, even when anxiety, distractions, or a reality TV show marathon threaten to talk you out of it. Think of it as I will power, the ability to do what you need to do, even if a part of you doesn't want to. I will and I won't power are the two sides of self-control, but they alone don't constitute willpower. To say no when you need to say no, and yes when you need to say yes, you need a third power, the ability to remember what you really want. I know, you think that what you really want is the brownie, the third martini, or the day off. But when you're facing temptation or flirting with procrastination, you need to remember that what you really want is to fit into your skinny jeans, get the promotion, get out of credit card debt, stay in your marriage or stay out of jail. Otherwise, what's going to stop you from following your immediate desires? To exert self-control, you need to find your motivation when it matters. This is I want power. Willpower is about harnessing the three powers of I will, I won't, and I want to help you achieve your goals and stay out of trouble. As we'll see, we human beings are the fortunate recipients of brains that support all of these capacities. In fact, the development of these three powers, I will, I won't, and I want, may define what it means to be human. 
Before we get down to the dirty business of analyzing why we fail to use these powers, let's begin by appreciating how lucky we are to have them. We'll take a quick peek into the brain to see where the magic happens and discover how we can train the brain to have more willpower. We'll also take our first look at why willpower can be hard to find and how to use another uniquely human trait, self-awareness, to avoid willpower failure. Why we have willpower. Imagine this. It is 100,000 years ago, and you are a top-of-the-line Homo sapiens of the most recently evolved variety. Yes, take a moment to get excited about your opposable thumbs, erect spine, and hyoid bone, which allows you to produce some kind of speech, though I'll be damned if I know what it sounds like. Congratulations, too, on your ability to use fire without setting yourself on fire, and your skill at carving up buffalo and hippos with your cutting-edge stone tools. Just a few generations ago, your responsibilities in life would have been so simple. One, find dinner. Two, reproduce. Three, avoid unexpected encounters with a crocodilus anthropophagus. That's Latin for crocodile that snacks on humans. But you live in a closely knit tribe and depend on other Homo sapiens for your survival. That means you have to add, not piss anyone off in the process, to your list of priorities. Communities require cooperation and sharing resources. You can't just take what you want. Stealing someone else's buffalo burger or mate could get you exiled from the group or even killed. Remember, other Homo sapiens have sharp stone tools too, and your skin is a lot thinner than a hippo's. Moreover, you might need your tribe to care for you if you get sick or injured. No more hunting and gathering for you. Even in the Stone Age, the rules for how to win friends and influence people were likely the same as today's. Cooperate when your neighbor needs shelter. Share your dinner, even if you're still hungry. And think twice before saying, that loincloth makes you look fat. In other words, a little self-control, please. It's not just your life that's on the line. The whole tribe's survival depends on your ability to be more selective about whom you fight with, keep it out of the clan, and whom you mate with. Not a first cousin, please. You need to increase genetic diversity so that your whole tribe isn't wiped out by one disease. And if you're lucky enough to find a mate, you're now expected to bond for life, not just frolic once behind a bush. Yes, for you, the almost modern human, there are all sorts of new ways to get into trouble with the time-tested instincts of appetite, aggression, and sex. This was just the beginning of the need for what we now call willpower. As prehistory marched on, the increasing complexity of our social worlds required a matching increase in self-control. The need to fit in, cooperate, and maintain long-term relationships put pressure on our early human brains to develop strategies for self-control. Who we are now is a response to these demands. Our brains caught up and voila, we have willpower. The ability to control the impulses that helped us become fully human. Why it matters now. Back to modern day life. You can keep your opposable thumbs, of course, though you may want to put on a little more clothing. Willpower has gone from being the thing that distinguishes us humans from other animals to the thing that distinguishes us from each other. We may all have been born with the capacity for willpower, but some of us use it more than others. 
people who have better control of their attention, emotions, and actions are better off almost any way you look at it. They are happier and healthier. Their relationships are more satisfying and last longer. They make more money and go further in their careers. They are better able to manage stress, deal with conflict, and overcome adversity. They even live longer. When pit against other virtues, willpower comes out on top. Self-control is a better predictor of academic success than intelligence. Take that, SATs. A stronger determinant of effective leadership than charisma. Sorry, Tony Robbins. And more important for marital bliss than empathy. Yes, the secret to lasting marriage may be learning how to keep your mouth shut. If we want to improve our lives, willpower is not a bad place to start. To do this, we're going to have to ask a little more of our standard-equipped brains. And so, let's start by taking a look at what it is we're working with. The Neuroscience of I Will, I Won't, and I Want Our modern powers of self-control are the product of long-ago pressures to be better neighbors, parents, and mates. But how exactly did the human brain catch up? The answer appears to be the development of the prefrontal cortex, a nice chunk of neural real estate right behind your forehead and eyes. For most of evolutionary history, the prefrontal cortex mainly controlled physical movement, walking, running, reaching, pushing, a kind of proto-self-control. As humans evolved, the prefrontal cortex got bigger and better connected to the other areas of the brain. It now takes up a larger portion of the human brain than the brains of other species, one reason you'll never see your dog saving kibble for retirement. As the prefrontal cortex grew, it took on new control functions, controlling what you pay attention to, what you think about, even how you feel. This made it even better at controlling what you do. Robert Saplosky, a neurobiologist at Stanford University, has argued that the main job of the modern prefrontal cortex is to bias the brain, and therefore you, toward doing the harder thing. When it's easier to stay on the couch, your prefrontal cortex makes you want to get up and exercise. When it's easier to say yes to dessert, your prefrontal cortex remembers the reasons for ordering tea instead. And when it's easier to put that project off until tomorrow, it's your prefrontal cortex that helps you open the file and make progress anyway. The prefrontal cortex is not one unified blob of gray matter. It has three key regions that divvy up the jobs of I will, I won't, and I want. One region, near the upper left side of the prefrontal cortex, specializes in I will power. It helps you start and stick to boring, difficult, or stressful tasks, like staying on the treadmill when you'd rather hit the shower. The right side, in contrast, handles I won't power, holding you back from following every impulse or craving. You can thank this region for the last time you were tempted to read a text message while driving, but kept your eyes on the road instead. Together, these two areas control what you do. The third region, just a bit lower and in the middle of the prefrontal cortex, keeps track of your goals and your desires. It decides what you want. The more rapidly it sells fire, the more motivated you are to take action or resist temptation. This part of the prefrontal cortex remembers what you really want, even when the rest of your brain is screaming, eat that, drink that, smoke that, 
by that. Under the microscope, what is the harder thing? Every willpower challenge requires doing something difficult, whether it's walking away from temptation or not running away from a stressful situation. Imagine yourself facing your specific willpower challenge. What is the harder thing? What makes it so difficult? How do you feel when you think about doing it? A mind-blowing case of willpower lost. How important is the prefrontal cortex for self-control? One way to answer that question is to look at what happens when you lose it. The most famous case of prefrontal cortex brain damage is the story of Phineas Gage. And fair warning, this is a gory story. You might want to put down your sandwich. In 1848, Phineas Gage was a 25-year-old foreman for a gang of rail workers. His employers called him their best foreman, and his team respected and liked him. His friends and family called him quiet and respectful. His physician, John Martin Harlow, described him as exceptionally strong in both mind and body, possessing an iron will and an iron frame. But all that changed on Wednesday, September 13th, at 4.30 p.m. Gage and his men were using explosives to clear a path through Vermont for the Rutland and Burlington Railroad. Gage's job was to set up each explosion. This procedure had gone right a thousand times, and yet this time, something went wrong. The explosion happened too soon, and the blast sent a three-foot, seven-inch tamping iron straight into Gage's skull. It pierced his left cheek, blew through his prefrontal cortex, and landed thirty yards behind him, carrying some of Gage's gray matter with it. You might now be picturing Gage, flat on his back, instantly killed. But he didn't die. By witness reports, he didn't even pass out. Instead, his workers put him in an ox cart and pushed him almost a mile back to the tavern where he was staying. His physician patched him up as well as possible, replacing the largest fragments of skull recovered from the accident site and stretching the scalp to cover the wounds. Gage's full physical recovery took over two months, set back perhaps as much by Dr. Harlow's enthusiasm for prescribing enemas as by the persistent fungus growing out of Gage's exposed brain. But by November 17th, he was sufficiently healed to return to his regular life. Gage himself reported, feeling better in every respect, with no lingering pain. Sounds like a happy ending. But, unfortunately for Gage, the story doesn't end there. His outer wounds may have healed, but something strange was happening inside Gage's brain. According to his friends and co-workers, his personality had changed. Dr. Harlow described the changes in a follow-up to his original medical report of the accident. The balance between his intellectual faculties and his animal propensities seems to have been destroyed. He is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity, which was not previously his custom, manifesting but little deference for his fellows, impatient of restraint or advice when it conflicts with his desires, devising many plans of future operation which are no sooner arranged than they are abandoned. In this regard, his mind was radically changed, so decidedly that his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer Gage. In other words, when Gage lost his prefrontal cortex, he lost his willpower, his won't power, and his want power. His iron will, something that had seemed like an unshakable part of his character, had been destroyed by the tamping iron that blew through his skull. 
Most of us don't have to worry about ill-timed railroad explosions robbing us of our self-control, but we all have a little Phineas Gage in us. The prefrontal cortex is not always as reliable as we'd like. Many temporary states, like being drunk, sleep-deprived, or even just distracted, inhibit the prefrontal cortex, mimicking the brain damage that Gage sustained. This leaves us less able to control our impulses, even though our gray matter is still safe in our skulls. Even when our brains are well-rested and sober, we aren't fully out of danger. That's because while we all have the capacity to do the harder thing, we also have the desire to do exactly the opposite. This impulse needs to be restrained, and as we'll see, it often has a mind of its own. The Problem of Two Minds When we watch our willpower fail, spending too much, eating too much, wasting time, and losing our tempers, well, it can make a person wonder if he has a prefrontal cortex at all. Sure, it might be possible to resist temptation, but that doesn't guarantee that we will. It's conceivable that we could do today what begs to be done tomorrow, but more often than not, tomorrow wins. For this frustrating fact of life, you can also give evolution a big thanks. As humans evolved, our brains didn't so much change as they grew. Evolution prefers to add on to what it's created, rather than start from scratch. So, as humans required new skills, our primitive brain was not replaced with some completely new model. The system of self-control was slapped on top of that old system of urges and instincts. That means that for any instinct that once served us well, evolution has kept it around, even if it now gets us into trouble. The good news is, evolution has also given us a way to handle the problems we run into. Take, for example, our taste buds' delight in the foods most likely to make us fat. An insatiable sweet tooth once helped humans survive when food was scarce and extra body fat was life insurance. Fast forward to our modern environment of fast food, junk food, and whole foods, and there is more than enough to go around. Extra weight has become a health risk, not an insurance policy, and the ability to resist tempting foods is more important for long-term survival. But, because it paid off for our ancestors, our modern brains still come equipped with a well-preserved instinct to crave fat and sweets. Fortunately, we can use the brain's more recently evolved self-control system to override those cravings and keep our hands out of the candy bowl. So, while we're stuck with the impulse, we're also equipped with the impulse control. Some neuroscientists go so far as to say that we have one brain but two minds, or even two people living inside our mind. There's the version of us that acts on impulse and seeks immediate gratification, and the version of us that controls our impulses and delays gratification to protect our long-term goals. They're both us, but we switch back and forth between these two selves. Sometimes we identify with the person who wants to lose weight, and sometimes we identify with the person who just wants the cookie. This is what defines a willpower challenge. Part of you wants one thing, and another part of you wants something else. Or, your present self wants one thing, but your future self would be better off if you did something else. When these two selves disagree, one version of us has to override the other. The part of you that wants to give in isn't bad. It simply has a different point of view about what matters most. Under the Microscope 
Meet your two minds. Every willpower challenge is a conflict between two parts of oneself. For your own willpower challenge, describe these competing minds. What does the impulse version of you want? What does the wiser version of you want? Some people find it useful to give a name to the impulsive mind, like the cookie monster, to the part of you that always wants instant gratification, the critic, to the part of you that likes to complain about everyone and everything, or the procrastinator, to the person who never wants to get started. Giving a name to this version of yourself can help you recognize when it is taking over and also help you call in your wiser self for some willpower support. The Value of Both Selves It's tempting to think about the self-control system as being the infinitely superior self and our more primitive instincts as an embarrassing vestige of our evolutionary past. Sure, back when our knuckles dragged in the dirt, those instincts helped us survive long enough to pass on our genes, but now they just get in the way, leading to health problems, empty bank accounts, and sexual encounters we have to apologize for on national television. If only we civilized creatures weren't still burdened with the desires of our long-ago ancestors. Not so fast. Though our survival system doesn't always work to our advantage, it is a mistake to think we should conquer the primitive self completely. Medical case studies of people who have lost these instincts through brain damage reveal how critical our primitive fears and desires are for health, happiness, and even self-control. One of the strangest cases involved a young woman who had part of her midbrain destroyed during a brain surgery to stop seizures. She appeared to lose the ability to feel fear and disgust, which robbed her of two of the most instinctive sources of self-restraint. She developed a habit of stuffing herself with food until she got sick and could frequently be found sexually propositioning family members, not exactly a model of self-control. As we'll see throughout this audiobook, Without desires, we'd become depressed, and without fear, we'd fail to protect ourselves from future danger. Part of succeeding at your willpower challenges will be finding a way to take advantage of, and not fight, such primitive instincts. Neuroeconomists, scientists who study what the brain does when we make decisions, have discovered that the self-control system and our survival instincts don't always conflict. In some cases, they cooperate to help us make good decisions. For example, imagine that you're walking through a department store and something shiny catches your eye. Your primitive brain shrieks, Buy it! Then you check out the price tag, $199.99. Before you saw the outrageous price, you would have needed some serious prefrontal cortex intervention to shut down the spending impulse. But what if your brain registers an instinctive, pain response to the price. Studies show that this actually happens. The brain can treat a hefty price tag like a physical punch to the gut. That instinctive shock is going to make the job easy for your prefrontal cortex, and you'll barely need to exert any I-won't power. As we aim to improve our willpower, we'll look for ways to use every bit of what it means to be human, including our most primitive instincts, from the desire for pleasure to the need to fit in to support our goals. The first rule of willpower, know thyself. Self-control is one of mankind's most fabulous upgrades, but it's not our only distinction. We also possess self-awareness, the ability to realize what we are doing as we do it 
and understand why we are doing it. With any luck, we can also predict what we're likely to do before we're doing it, giving us ample opportunity to reconsider. This level of self-awareness appears to be uniquely human. Sure, dolphins and elephants can recognize themselves in a mirror, but there's little evidence that they search their souls for self-understanding. Without self-awareness, the self-control system would be useless. You need to recognize when you're making a choice that requires willpower. Otherwise, the brain always defaults to what is easiest. Consider a smoker who wants to quit. She needs to recognize the first sign of a craving and where it's likely to lead her, outside in the cold, fumbling with a lighter. She also needs to recognize that if she gives in to the craving this time, she's more likely to smoke again tomorrow. One more look in the crystal ball, and she'll see that if she continues on this path, she'll end up with all those horrible diseases she learned about in health class. To avoid this fate, she needs to make a conscious choice not to smoke the cigarette. Without self-awareness, she's doomed. This may sound simple, but psychologists know that most of our choices are made on autopilot, without any real awareness of what's driving them, and certainly without serious reflection on their consequences. Heck, most of the time, we don't even realize we're making a choice. For example, one study asked people how many food-related decisions they made in one day. What would you say? On average, people guessed 14. In reality, when these same folks carefully tracked their decisions, the average was 227. That's more than 200 choices people were initially unaware of, and those are just the decisions related to eating. How can you control yourself if you aren't even aware that there is something to control? Modern society, with its constant distractions and stimulation, doesn't help. Baba Shiv, a professor of marketing at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, has shown that people who are distracted are more likely to give in to temptations. For example, students trying to remember a telephone number are 50% more likely to choose chocolate cake over fruit at a snack cart. Distracted shoppers are more susceptible to in-store promotions and more likely to go home with items not on their shopping lists. When your mind is preoccupied, your impulses, not your long-term goals, will guide your choices. Texting as you stand in line waiting to order at the coffee shop? You might just find yourself asking for a mocha milkshake instead of an iced coffee. Incoming text message? Bet you don't want to know how many calories are in that drink. Can't get your mind off work? You might just find yourself agreeing with the salesperson that you need the upgrade and unlimited service package. Willpower Experiment Track your willpower choices. To have more self-control, you first need to develop more self-awareness. A good first step is to notice when you are making choices related to your willpower challenge. Some will be more obvious, such as, do I go to the gym after work? The impact of other decisions might not be clear until later in the day, when you see their full consequences. For example, did you choose to pack your gym bag so you wouldn't have to go home first? Smart, you'll be less likely to make excuses. Did you get caught up in a phone call until you were too hungry to go straight to the gym? Oops, you'll be less likely to exercise if you have to stop for dinner first. For at least one day, track your choices. 
At the end of the day, look back and try to analyze when decisions were made that either supported or undermined your goals. Trying to keep track of your choices will also reduce the number of decisions you make while distracted, a guaranteed way to boost your willpower. An email addict takes the first step to recovery. Michelle, a 31-year-old radio show producer, was constantly checking email on her computer or her phone. It was disrupting her productivity at work and annoying her boyfriend, who could never manage to get Michelle's full attention. Her willpower challenge for the class was to check email less, and she set an ambitious goal of checking no more than once an hour. After the first week, she reported that she did not even come close to her goal. The problem was that she often didn't realize that she was checking her email until after she was scrolling through new messages. She could stop once she realized what she was doing, but whatever impulse led her to look at her phone or click over her email was happening outside of conscious awareness. Michelle set the goal to catch herself sooner in the process. By the next week, she was able to notice when she was reaching for her phone or opening her email. That gave her an opportunity to practice stopping before she got fully sucked in. The impulse to check was more elusive. Michelle had trouble recognizing what was prompting her to check before she was in the process of checking. With time, though, she came to recognize a feeling almost like an itch, a tension in her brain and body that was relieved when she checked her email. That observation was fascinating to Michelle. She had never thought of checking email as a way to relieve tension. She had thought she was just seeking information. As she paid attention to how she felt after she checked, Michelle realized that checking her email was as ineffective as scratching an itch. It just made her itch more. With this awareness of both the impulse and her response, she had much more control over her behavior and even surpassed her original goal to check less often outside of work hours. This week, commit to watching how the process of giving in to your impulses happens. You don't even need to set a goal to improve your self-control yet. See if you can catch yourself earlier and earlier in the process, noticing what thoughts, feelings, and situations are most likely to prompt the impulse. What do you think or say to yourself that makes it more likely that you will give in? Train your brain for willpower. It took evolution millions of years to deliver a prefrontal cortex that is capable of everything we humans need, so perhaps it's a little greedy to ask this. But is it possible to make our brains even better at self-control without having to hang around for another million? If a basic human brain is pretty good at self-control, is there anything we can do right now to improve on the standard model? Since the dawn of time, or at least since researchers started poking and prodding the human brain, it was assumed that the brain was fixed in structure. Whatever brain power you had was a done deal, not a work in progress. The only change your brain was going to see was the deterioration of getting old. But over the last decade, neuroscientists have discovered that, like an eager student, the brain is remarkably responsive to experience. Ask your brain to do math every day, and it gets better at math. Ask your brain to worry, and it gets better at worrying. Ask your brain to concentrate, and it gets better at concentrating. Not only does your brain find these things easier, but it actually remodels itself based on what you ask it to do. Some parts of the brain grow denser, 
packing in more and more gray matter like a muscle bulking up from exercise. For example, adults who learn how to juggle develop more gray matter in regions of the brain that track moving objects. Areas of the brain can also grow more connected to each other, so they can share information more quickly. For example, adults who play memory games for 25 minutes a day develop greater connectivity between brain regions important for attention and memory. But brain training isn't just for juggling and remembering where you left your glasses. There is growing scientific evidence that you can train your brain to get better at self-control. What does willpower training for your brain look like? Well, you could challenge your I won't power by planting temptation traps around your home, a chocolate bar in your sock drawer, a martini station by your exercise bike, the photo of your very married high school sweetheart taped to the fridge. Or you could build your own I will power obstacle course with stations that require you to drink wheatgrass juice, do 20 jumping jacks, and file your taxes early. Or you could do something a lot simpler and less painful. Meditate. Neuroscientists have discovered that when you ask the brain to meditate, it gets better not just at meditating, but at a wide range of self-control skills, including attention, focus, stress management, impulse control, and self-awareness. People who meditate regularly aren't just better at these things. Over time, their brains become finely tuned willpower machines. Regular meditators have more gray matter in the prefrontal cortex, as well as regions of the brain that support self-awareness. It doesn't take a lifetime of meditation to change the brain. Some researchers have started to look for the smallest dose of meditation needed to see benefits, an approach my students deeply appreciate since not many are going to head off to the Himalayas to sit in a cave for the next decade. These studies take people who have never meditated before, even folks who are skeptical of the whole thing, and teach them a simple meditation technique like the one you'll learn just ahead. One study found that just three hours of meditation practice led to improved attention and self-control. After 11 hours, researchers could see those changes in the brain. The new meditators had increased neural connections between regions of the brain important for staying focused, ignoring distractions, and controlling impulses. Another study found that eight weeks of daily meditation practice led to increased self-awareness in everyday life, as well as increased gray matter in corresponding areas of the brain. It may seem incredible that our brains can reshape themselves so quickly, but meditation increases blood flow to the prefrontal cortex, in much the same way that lifting weights increases blood flow to your muscles. The brain appears to adapt to exercise in the same way that muscles do, getting both bigger and faster in order to get better at what you ask of it. So, if you're ready to train your brain, the following meditation technique will get the blood rushing to your prefrontal cortex, the closest we can get to speeding up evolution and making the most of our brain's potential. Willpower Experiment A 5-Minute Brain Training Meditation Breath focus is a simple but powerful meditation technique for training your brain and increasing willpower. It reduces stress and teaches the mind how to handle both inner distractions, cravings, worries, desires, and outer temptations, sounds, sights, and smells. New research shows that regular meditation practice helps people quit smoking, lose weight, kick a drug habit, and stay sober. 
Whatever your I will and I won't challenges are, this five-minute meditation is a powerful brain training exercise for boosting your willpower. Here's how to get started. 1. Sit still and stay put. Sit in a chair with your feet flat on the ground or sit cross-legged on a cushion. Sit up straight and rest your hands in your lap. It's important not to fidget when you meditate. That's the physical foundation of self-control. If you notice the instinct to scratch an itch, adjust your arms or cross and uncross your legs. See if you can feel the urge but not follow it. This simple act of staying still is part of what makes meditation willpower training effective. You're learning not to automatically follow every single impulse that your brain and body produce. 2. Turn your attention to the breath. Close your eyes, or if you are worried about falling asleep, focus your gaze at a single spot, like a blank wall, not the home shopping network. Be sure to notice your breathing. Silently say in your mind, inhale as you breathe in and exhale as you breathe out. When you notice your mind wandering, and it will, just bring it back to the breath. This practice of coming back to the breath again and again kicks the prefrontal cortex into high gear and quiets the stress and craving centers of your brain. 3. Notice how it feels to breathe and notice how the mind wanders. After a few minutes, drop the labels inhale, exhale. Try focusing on just the feeling of breathing. You might notice the sensations of the breath flowing in and out of your nose and mouth. You might sense the belly or chest expanding as you breathe in and deflating as you breathe out. Your mind might wander a bit more without the labeling. Just as before, when you notice yourself thinking about something else, bring your attention back to the breath. If you need help refocusing, bring yourself back to the breath by saying, inhale and exhale for a few rounds. This part of the practice trains self-awareness along with self-control. Start with five minutes a day. When this becomes a habit, try 10 to 15 minutes a day. If that starts to feel like a burden, bring it back down to five. A short practice that you do every day is better than a long practice you keep putting off to tomorrow. It may help you to pick a specific time that you will meditate every day, like right before your morning shower. If this is impossible, staying flexible will help you fit it in when you can. Being bad at meditation is good for self-control. Andrew felt like a terrible meditator. The 51-year-old electrical engineer was convinced that the goal of meditation was to get rid of all thoughts and empty the mind. Even when he was focused on his breath, other thoughts sneaked in. He was ready to give up on the practice because he wasn't getting better at it as quickly as he hoped and figured he was wasting his time if he wasn't able to focus perfectly on the breath. Most new meditators make this mistake, but the truth is that being bad at meditation is exactly what makes the practice effective. I encouraged Andrew and all the other frustrated meditators in class to pay attention not just to how well they were focusing during the meditation, but how it was affecting their focus and choices during the rest of the day. Andrew found that even when his meditation felt distracted, he was more focused after practicing than if he skipped it.
he also realized that what he was doing in meditation was exactly what he needed to do in real life. Catch himself moving away from a goal and then point himself back at the goal. In this case, focusing on the breath. The meditation was perfect practice. Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to our content. Remember to follow us here on the platform. We prepared a graphic of the book with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps so you know everything about the book in minutes. For when he was just about to order something salty and deep fried for lunch and needed to stop and order something healthier. It was perfect practice for when he had a sarcastic comment on his lips and needed to pause and hold his tongue. And it was perfect practice for noticing when he was wasting time at work and needed to get back on track. All day long, self-control was a process of noticing that he was off goal and redirecting himself to the goal. With this realization, Andrew no longer cared if his whole 10-minute meditation was spent getting distracted and coming back to the breath. The worse the meditation, the better the practice for real life, as long as he was able to notice when his mind was wandering. Meditation is not about getting rid of all your thoughts. It's learning not to get so lost in them that you forget what your goal is. Don't worry if your focus isn't perfect when meditating. Just practice coming back to the breath again and again. The Last Word Thanks to the architecture of the modern human brain, we each have multiple selves that compete for control of our thoughts, feelings, and actions. Every willpower challenge is a battle among these different versions of ourselves. To put the higher self in charge, we need to strengthen the systems of self-awareness and self-control. When we do, we find the willpower and the want power to do the harder thing. Chapter Summary the idea. Willpower is actually three powers, I will, I won't, and I want, that help us to be a better version of ourselves. Under the microscope. What is the harder thing? Imagine yourself facing your willpower challenge and doing the harder thing. What makes it hard? Meet your two minds. For your willpower challenge, describe your two competing selves. What does the impulsive version of you want? What does the wiser version of you want? Willpower Experiments Track your willpower choices. For at least one day, try to notice every decision you make related to your willpower challenge. 5-Minute Brain Training Meditation Focus on your breath using the words Inhale and exhale in your mind. When your mind wanders, notice and bring it back to the breath. Chapter 2 The Willpower Instinct Your body was born to resist cheesecake. It starts with a flash of excitement. Your brain buzzes and your heart pounds in your chest. It's like your whole body is saying, Yes. Then the anxiety hits. Your lungs tighten and your muscles tense. You start to feel lightheaded and a little nauseous. You are almost trembling. You want this so much, but you can't. But you want, but you can't. 
You know what you need to do, but you aren't sure you can handle this feeling without falling apart or giving in. Welcome to the world of craving. Maybe it's a craving for a cigarette, a drink, or a triple latte. Maybe it's the sight of a last-chance super-clearance sale, a lottery ticket, or a donut in the bakery window. In such a moment, you face a choice. Follow the craving, or find the inner strength to control yourself. This is the moment you need to say, I won't, when every cell in your body is saying, I want. You know when you've met a real willpower challenge because you feel it in your body. It's not some abstract argument between what is right and what is wrong. It feels like a battle happening inside you, a battle between two parts of yourself, or what often feels like two very different people. Sometimes the craving wins, sometimes the part of you that knows better or wants better for yourself wins. Why you succeed or fail at these willpower challenges can seem like a mystery. One day you resist, and the next you succumb. You might ask yourself, what was I thinking? But a better question might be, what was my body doing? Science is discovering that self-control is a matter of physiology, not just psychology. It's a temporary state of both mind and body that gives you the strength and calm to override your impulses. Researchers are beginning to understand what that state looks like and why the complexity of our modern world often interferes with it. The good news is that you can learn to shift your physiology into that state when you need your willpower the most. You can also train the body's capacity to stay in this state so that when temptation strikes, your instinctive response is one of self-control. A Tale of Two Threats to understand what happens in the body when we exercise self-control, we need to start with an important distinction. The difference between a saber-toothed tiger and a strawberry cheesecake. In one important respect, the tiger and the cheesecake are alike. Both can derail your goal to live a long and healthy life. But in other ways, they are critically different threats. What the brain and body do to deal with them will be very different. Lucky for you, Evolution has endowed you with exactly the resources you need to protect yourself from both. When Danger Strikes Let's start with a little trip back in time to a place where fierce saber-toothed tigers once stalked their prey. Imagine you are in the Serengeti in East Africa, minding your own early hominid business. Perhaps you are scavenging for lunch among the carcasses scattered across the savanna. Things are going well. Is that an abandoned, freshly killed hyena you spy? when all of a sudden, holy shit, a saber-toothed tiger is lurking in the branches of a nearby tree. Perhaps he's savoring his hyena appetizer and contemplating his second course, you. He looks eager to sink those 11-inch teeth into your flesh, and unlike your 21st century self, this predator has no qualms about satisfying his cravings. Don't expect him to be on a diet, eyeing your curves as a bit too calorie-rich. Fortunately, you are not the first person to find yourself in this very situation. Many of your long-ago ancestors faced this enemy and others like him, and so you have inherited from your ancestors an instinct that helps you respond to any threat that requires fighting or running for your life. This instinct is appropriately called the fight-or-flight stress response. You know the feeling. Heart pounding, jaw clenching, senses on high alert, these changes in the body are no accident. 
They are coordinated in a sophisticated way by the brain and nervous system to make sure you act quickly and with every ounce of energy you have. Here's what happened physiologically when you spotted that saber-toothed tiger. The information from your eyes first made its way to an area of the brain called the amygdala, which functions as your own personal alarm system. This alarm system sits in the middle of your brain and lives to detect possible emergencies. When it notices a threat, its central location makes it easy to get the message out to other areas of your brain and body. When the alarm system got the signal from your eyeballs that there was a saber-toothed tiger eyeing you, it launched a series of signals to your brain and body that prompted the fight-or-flight response. Stress hormones were released from your adrenal glands. Energy, in the form of fats and sugar, was released into your bloodstream from your liver. Your respiratory system got your lungs pumping to fuel the body with extra oxygen. Your cardiovascular system kicked into high gear to make sure the energy in your bloodstream would get to the muscles doing the fighting or the fleeing. Every cell in your body got the memo. Time to show what you're made of. While your body was getting ready to defend your life, the alarm system in your brain was busy trying to make sure that you didn't get in the body's way. It focused your attention and senses on the saber-toothed tiger and your surroundings, making sure no stray thoughts distracted you from the threat at hand. The alarm system also prompted a complex change in brain chemicals that inhibited your prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain in charge of impulse control. That's right. The fight-or-flight response wants to make you more impulsive. The rational, wise, and deliberate prefrontal cortex is effectively put to sleep, the better to make sure you don't chicken out or overthink your escape. Speaking of escape, I'd say your best bet in this situation is to start running. Now. The fight-or-flight response is one of nature's greatest gifts to mankind. The built-in ability of your body and brain to devote all of their energy to saving your butt in an emergency. You aren't going to waste energy, physical or mental, on anything that doesn't help you survive the immediate crisis. So... When the fight-or-flight response takes over, the physical energy that might a moment ago have been devoted to digesting your morning snack or repairing a hangnail is redirected to the task of immediate self-preservation. Mental energy that was focused on finding your dinner or planning your next great cave painting is rechanneled into present-moment vigilance and rapid action. In other words, the fight-or-flight stress response is an energy management instinct. It decides how you are going to spend your limited physical and mental energy. A new kind of threat. Still in the savanna of the Serengeti fleeing the saber-toothed tiger? Sorry about that. I apologize if our trip back in time was a bit stressful, but it was a necessary detour if we want to understand the biology of self-control. Let's come back to today, away from the prowl of now-extinct predators. Catch your breath, relax a little, Let's find our way somewhere safer and more pleasant. How about a stroll down your local main street? Imagine it now. It's a beautiful day, with bright sun and a gentle breeze. The birds in the trees are singing John Lennon's Imagine, when all of a sudden, bam, in a bakery display case, there sits the most delectable strawberry cheesecake you have ever seen. A radiant red glaze glistens over its smooth, creamy surface. A few carefully placed strawberry slices bring to mind the taste of childhood summers. Before you can say, oh wait, I'm on a diet, 
Your feet are moving toward the door, your hand is pulling the handle, and the bells chime, your tongue hanging, mouth drooling arrival. What's going on in the brain and body now? A few things. First, your brain is temporarily taken over by the promise of reward. At the sight of that strawberry cheesecake, your brain launches a neurotransmitter called dopamine from the middle of your brain into areas of the brain that control your attention, motivation, and action. Those little dopamine messengers tell your brain, must get cheesecake now or suffer a fate worse than death. This might explain the near-automatic movement of your feet and hands into the bakery. Whose hand is that? Is that my hand on the door? Yes, it is. Now, how much is that cheesecake? While all this is happening, your blood sugar drops. As soon as your brain anticipates your mouth's first creamy bite, it releases a neurochemical that tells the body to take up whatever energy is circulating in the blood system. The body's logic is this. A slice of cheesecake, high in sugar and fat, is going to produce a major spike in blood sugar. To prevent an unsightly sugar coma and the rare, but never pretty, death by cheesecake, you need to lower the sugar currently in the bloodstream. How kind of the body to look out for you in this way. But... This drop in blood sugar can leave you feeling a little shaky and cranky, making you crave the cheesecake even more. Hmm, sneaky. I don't want to sound like a cheesecake conspiracy theorist, but if it's a contest between the cheesecake and your good intention to diet, I'd say the cheesecake is winning. But wait. Just as in the Serengeti, you have a secret weapon. Willpower. You remember willpower? The ability to do what really matters, even when it's difficult? Right now, what really matters isn't the momentary pleasure of cheesecake molecules hitting your palate. Part of you knows that you have bigger goals. Goals like health, happiness, and fitting into your pants tomorrow. This part of you recognizes that the cheesecake threatens your long-term goals. And so it will do whatever it can to deal with this threat. This is your willpower instinct. But, unlike the saber-toothed tiger, the cheesecake is not a real threat. Think about it. That cheesecake cannot do anything to you, your health, or your waistline unless you pick up the fork. That's right. This time, the enemy is within. You don't need to flee the bakery, although it might not hurt, and you definitely don't need to kill the cheesecake or the baker. But you do need to do something about those inner cravings. You can't exactly kill a desire. And because the cravings are inside your mind and body, there's no obvious escape. The fight-or-flight stress response, which pushes you toward your most primitive urges, is exactly what you don't need right now. Self-control requires a different approach to self-preservation, one that helps you handle this new kind of threat. Under the microscope, what is the threat? We're used to seeing temptation and trouble outside of ourselves the dangerous donut, the sinful cigarette, the enticing internet. But self-control points the mirror back at ourselves and our inner worlds of thoughts, desires, emotions, and impulses. For your willpower challenge, identify the inner impulse that needs to be restrained. What is the thought or feeling that makes you want to do whatever it is you don't want to do? If you aren't sure, try some field observation. Next time you're tempted, turn your attention inward. The Willpower Instinct. Pause and Plan. 
Suzanne Segerstrom, a psychologist at the University of Kentucky, studies how states of mind like stress and hope influence the body. She has found that, just like stress, self-control has a biological signature. The need for self-control sets into motion a coordinated set of changes in the brain and body that help you resist temptation and override self-destructive urges. Segerstrom calls those changes the pause-and-plan response, which couldn't look more different from the fight-or-flight response. You'll recall from our trip to the Serengeti that a fight-or-flight stress response starts when you recognize an external threat. Your brain and body then go into the self-defense mode of attack or escape. The pause-and-plan response differs in one very crucial way. It starts with the perception of an internal conflict, not an external threat. You want to do one thing, smoke a cigarette, supersize your lunch, visit inappropriate websites at work, but no, you shouldn't. Or, you know you should do something, file your taxes, finish a project, go to the gym, but you'd rather do nothing. This internal conflict is its own kind of threat. Your instincts are pushing you toward a potentially bad decision. What's needed, therefore, is protection of yourself by yourself. This is what self-control is all about. The most helpful response will be to slow you down, not speed you up, as a fight-or-flight response does. And this is precisely what the pause-and-plan response does. The perception of an internal conflict triggers changes in the brain and body that help you slow down and control your impulses. This is your brain and body on willpower. Like the fight-or-flight response, the pause-and-plan response begins in the brain. Just as the alarm system of your brain is always monitoring what you hear, see, and smell, other areas are keeping track of what's going on inside of you. This self-monitoring system is distributed throughout the brain, connecting the self-control regions of the prefrontal cortex with areas of the brain that keep track of your body sensations, thoughts, and emotions. One important job of this system is to keep you from making stupid mistakes, like breaking a six-month stretch of sobriety, yelling at your boss, or ignoring your overdue credit card bills. The self-monitoring system is just waiting to detect warning signs, in the form of thoughts, emotions, and sensations, that you are about to do something you will later regret. When your brain recognizes such a warning, our good friend, the prefrontal cortex, jumps into action to help you make the right choice. To help the prefrontal cortex, the pause-and-plan response redirects energy from the body to the brain. For self-control, you don't need legs ready to run or arms ready to punch, but a well-fueled brain ready to flex its power. As we saw with the fight-or-flight response, the pause-and-plan response doesn't stop in the brain. Remember, your body has already started to respond to that cheesecake. Your brain needs to bring the body on board with your goals and put the brakes on your impulses. To do this, your prefrontal cortex will communicate the need for self-control to lower brain regions that regulate your heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, and other automatic functions. The pause and plan response drives you in the opposite direction of the fight-or-flight response. Instead of speeding up, your heart slows down and your blood pressure stays normal. Instead of hyperventilating like a madman, you take a deep breath. Instead of tensing muscles to prime them for action, your body relaxes a little. 
The pause and plan response puts your body into a calmer state, but not too sedate. The goal is not to paralyze you in the face of internal conflict, but to give you freedom. By keeping you from immediately following your impulses, the pause and plan response gives you the time for more flexible, thoughtful action. From this state of mind and body, you can choose to walk away from the cheesecake with both your pride and your diet intact. While the pause and plan response is as innate to our human nature as the fight-or-flight response, you've no doubt noticed that it doesn't always feel as instinctive as, say, eating the cheesecake. To understand why the willpower instinct doesn't always kick in, we need to dive a little deeper into the biology of both stress and self-control. The Body's Willpower Reserve The single best physiological measurement of the pause and plan response is something called heart rate variability, a measurement most people have never heard of, but one that provides an amazing window into the body's state of stress or calm. Everybody's heart rate varies to some degree. This is easy to feel when you run up the stairs and your heart rate soars. But if you're healthy, your heart rate has had some normal ups and downs even as you've listened to this page. We're not talking dangerous arrhythmias here, just little variations. Your heart speeds up a bit when you inhale. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. It slows down again when you exhale. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. This is good. This is healthy. It means that your heart is getting signals from both branches of your autonomic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system, which revs the body into action, and the parasympathetic nervous system, which promotes relaxation and healing in the body. When people are under stress, the sympathetic nervous system takes over, which is part of the basic biology that helps you fight or flee. Heart rate goes up and variability goes down. The heart gets stuck at a higher rate, contributing to the physical feelings of anxiety or anger that accompany the fight-or-flight response. In contrast, when people successfully exert self-control, the parasympathetic nervous system steps in to calm stress and control impulsive action. Heart rate goes down, but variability goes up. When this happens, it contributes to a sense of focus and calm. Segerstrom first observed this physiological signature of self-control when she asked hungry students not to eat freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. It was a cruel setup, actually. The students had been asked to fast in preparation for a taste test. When they arrived, they were taken into a room with a tempting display of warm chocolate chip cookies, chocolate candy, and carrots. Then they were told, Eat all the carrots you want, but don't touch the cookies or candy. Those are for the next participants. Reluctantly, they had to resist the sweets, and that's when heart rate variability went up. The lucky control participants who were asked to resist the carrots but enjoy all the cookies and candy they wanted? No change. Heart rate variability is such a good index of willpower that you can use it to predict who will resist temptation and who will give in. For example, recovering alcoholics whose heart rate variability goes up when they see a drink are more likely to stay sober. Recovering alcoholics who show the opposite response their heart rate variability drops when they see a drink, have a greater risk of relapse. Studies also show that people with higher heart rate variability are better at ignoring distractions, delaying gratification, and dealing with stressful situations. 
They are also less likely to give up on difficult tasks, even when they initially fail to receive critical feedback. These findings have led psychologists to call heart rate variability the body's reserve of willpower, a physiological measure of your capacity for self-control. If you have high heart rate variability, you have more willpower available for whenever temptation strikes. Why are some people lucky enough to face willpower challenges with high heart rate variability, while others meet temptation at a distinct physiological disadvantage? Many factors influence your willpower reserve, from what you eat, plant-based, unprocessed foods help, junk food doesn't, to where you live. Poor air quality decreases heart rate variability. Yes, L.A. smog may be contributing to the high percentage of movie stars in rehab. Anything that puts a stress on your mind or body can interfere with the physiology of self-control and, by extension, sabotage your willpower. Anxiety, anger, depression, and loneliness are all associated with lower heart rate variability and less self-control. Chronic pain and illness can also drain your body and brain's willpower reserve. But there are just as many things you can do that shift the body and mind toward the physiology of self-control. The focus meditation you learned in the last chapter is one of the easiest and most effective ways to improve the biological basis of willpower. It not only trains the brain, but also increases heart rate variability. Anything else that you do to reduce stress and take care of your health, exercise, get a good night's sleep, eat better, spend quality time with friends and family, participate in a religious or spiritual practice, will improve your body's willpower reserve. Willpower Experiment Breathe Your Way to Self-Control You won't find many quick fixes in this audiobook, but there is one way to immediately boost willpower. Slow your breathing down to four to six breaths per minute. That's 10 to 15 seconds per breath, slower than you normally breathe, but not difficult with a little bit of practice and patience. Slowing the breath down activates the prefrontal cortex and increases heart rate variability, which helps shift the brain and body from a state of stress to self-control mode. A few minutes of this technique will make you feel calm, in control, and capable of handling cravings or challenges. It's a good idea to practice slowing down your breath before you're staring down a cheesecake. Start by timing yourself to see how many breaths you normally take in one minute. Then, begin to slow the breath down without holding your breath. That will only increase stress. For most people, it's easier to slow down the exhalation, so focus on exhaling slowly and completely. Pursing your lips and imagining that you are exhaling through a straw in your mouth can help. Exhaling fully will help you breathe in more fully and deeply without struggling. If you don't quite get down to four breaths a minute, don't worry. Heart rate variability steadily increases as your breathing rate drops below 12 per minute. Research shows that regular practice of this technique can make you more resilient to stress and build your willpower reserve. One study found that a daily 20-minute practice of slowed breathing increased heart rate variability and reduced cravings and depression among adults recovering from substance abuse and post-traumatic stress disorder. Heart rate variability training programs, using similar breathing exercises, have also been used to improve self-control and decrease the stress of cops, stock traders, and customer service operators, three of the most stressful jobs on the planet. And because it takes only one to two minutes of breathing at this pace to boost your willpower reserve, 
It's something you can do whenever you face a willpower challenge. Willpower Rx One of my students, Nathan, worked as a physician's assistant at the local hospital. It was a rewarding but stressful job that involved both direct patient care and administrative duties. He found that the slowed breathing exercise helped him think clearly and make better decisions under pressure. It was so useful, he taught it to his co-workers. They too started slowing down their breathing to prepare for stressful situations, such as talking to a patient's family, or to help deal with the physical strain of working a long shift without enough sleep. Nathan even started suggesting it to patients to help them deal with anxiety or get through an uncomfortable medical procedure. Many of the patients felt as though they had no control over what was happening to them. Slowing down their breath gave them a sense of control over their mind and body and helped them find the courage they needed in difficult situations. Train your mind and your body. While there are many things you can do to support the physiology of self-control, this week I'm asking you to consider the two strategies that have the biggest bang for their buck. Both are inexpensive and immediately effective, with benefits that only build with time. They also improve a wide set of willpower saboteurs, including depression, anxiety, chronic pain, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. That makes them good investments for anyone who wants more willpower and doesn't mind the side effects of better health and happiness. The Willpower Miracle Megan Oten, a psychologist, and Ken Cheng, a biologist, had just concluded their first study of a new treatment for enhancing self-control. These two researchers at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, were stunned by the findings. While they had hoped for positive results, nobody could have predicted how far-reaching the treatment's effects would be. The trial guinea pigs were six men and 18 women, ranging in age from 18 to 50 years old. After two months of treatment, they showed improvements in attention and the ability to ignore distractions. In an age of 30-second attention spans, that would have been reason enough to celebrate. But there was more. They had reduced their smoking, drinking, and caffeine intake, despite the fact that nobody had asked them to. They were eating less junk food and more healthy food. They were spending less time watching television and more time studying. They were saving money and spending less on impulse purchases. They felt more in control of their emotions. They even procrastinated less and were less likely to be late for appointments. Good God, what is this miracle drug and where can I get a prescription? The intervention wasn't a drug at all. The willpower miracle was physical exercise. The participants, none of whom exercised regularly before the intervention, were given free membership to a gym and encouraged to make good use of it. They exercised an average of just one time per week for the first month, but were up to three times per week by the end of the two-month study. The researchers did not ask them to make any other changes in their lives, and yet the exercise program seemed to spark newfound strength and self-control in all aspects of their lives. Exercise turns out to be the closest thing to a wonder drug that self-control scientists have discovered. For starters, the willpower benefits of exercise are immediate. Fifteen minutes on a treadmill reduces cravings, as seen when researchers try to tempt dieters with chocolate and smokers with cigarettes. The long-term effects of exercise are even more impressive. It not only relieves ordinary everyday stress, but it's as powerful an antidepressant as Prozac, 
Working out also enhances the biology of self-control by increasing baseline heart rate variability and training the brain. When neuroscientists have peered inside the brains of new exercisers, they have seen increases in both gray matter, brain cells, and white matter, the insulation on brain cells that helps them communicate quickly and efficiently with each other. Physical exercise, like meditation, makes your brain bigger and faster, and the prefrontal cortex shows the largest training effect. The first question my students ask when they hear this research is, how much do I need to do? My response is always, how much are you willing to do? There's no point setting a goal that you're going to abandon in a week, and there's no scientific consensus about how much exercise you need to do. A 2010 analysis of 10 different studies found that the biggest mood-boosting, stress-busting effects came from five-minute doses of exercise, not hour-long sessions. There's no shame, and a lot of potential good, in committing to just a five-minute walk around the block. The next question everyone asks is, what kind of exercise is best? To which I respond, what kind will you actually do? The body and brain don't seem to discriminate, so whatever you are willing to do is the perfect place to start. Gardening, walking, dancing, yoga, team sports, swimming, playing with your kids or pets, even enthusiastic house cleaning and window shopping qualify as exercise. If you are absolutely convinced that exercise is not for you, I encourage you to expand your definition to include anything you reasonably enjoy about which you can answer no to the following two questions. 1. Are you sitting, standing still, or lying down? 2. Are you eating junk food while you do it? When you have found an activity that meets this definition, congratulations. You have found your willpower workout. Anything above and beyond the typical sedentary lifestyle will improve your willpower reserve. Willpower Experiment The 5-Minute Green Willpower Fill-Up If you want a quick willpower fill-up, your best bet may be to head outdoors. Just 5 minutes of what scientists call green exercise decreases stress, improves mood, enhances focus, and boosts self-control. Green exercise is any physical activity that gets you outdoors and in the presence of mama nature. The best news is that when it comes to green exercise, a quick fix really is enough. Shorter bursts have a more powerful effect on your mood than longer workouts, so you don't have to break a sweat or push yourself to exhaustion. Lower-intensity exercise, like walking, has stronger immediate effects than high-intensity exercise. Here are some ideas for your own 5-minute green exercise willpower fill-up. Get out of the office and head for the closest grocery. Cue up a favorite song on your iPad and walk or jog around the block. Take your dog outside to play and chase the toy yourself. Do a bit of work in your yard or garden. Step outside for some fresh air and do a few simple stretches. Challenge your kids to a race or game in the backyard. A reluctant exerciser changes his mind. Antonio, a 54-year-old owner of two successful Italian restaurants, was in my class on doctor's orders. He had high blood pressure and cholesterol, and his waist size kept creeping up an inch every year. If he didn't change his lifestyle, his doctor warned him, he was going to collapse of a heart attack over a plate of veal parmesan. Antonio had reluctantly gotten a treadmill for his home office, but it wasn't seeing much use. 
Exercise seemed like a waste of time. It wasn't fun, and it wasn't productive, not to mention the irritation of someone else telling him what he needed to do. The idea that exercise could increase brain power and willpower intrigued Antonio, though. He was a competitive guy and did not want to slow down. He started to see exercise as a secret weapon, something that could keep him at the top of his game. It didn't hurt that it would improve heart rate variability, which is a major predictor of mortality among people with cardiovascular disease. He turned his treadmill into a willpower generator by taping a willpower label over the machine's calorie tracker, since he didn't really give a damn how many calories he burned. This was a guy who would throw an entire stick of butter in a pan without thinking twice. As he walked and burned more calories, the willpower number ticked up, and he felt stronger. He started to use the treadmill each morning to fuel up with willpower for the day's difficult meetings and long hours. Antonio's willpower machine did improve his health, what his doctor wanted, but Antonio also got something he wanted. He felt more energized and in control throughout the day. He had assumed that exercise would take away from his energy and time, but he found it gave him back far more than he spent. If you tell yourself you are too tired or don't have the time to exercise, start thinking of exercise as something that restores, not drains your energy and willpower. Gain willpower in your sleep. If you are surviving on less than six hours of sleep a night, there's a good chance you don't even remember what it's like to have your full willpower. Being mildly but chronically sleep-deprived makes you more susceptible to stress, cravings, and temptation. It also makes it more difficult to control your emotions, focus your attention, or find the energy to tackle the big I will power challenges. In my classes, there's always one group that immediately recognizes the truth of this statement, new parents. If you are chronically sleep-deprived, you may find yourself feeling regret at the end of the day, wondering why you gave in again to temptation or put off doing what you needed to do. It's easy to let this spiral into shame and guilt. It hardly ever occurs to us that we don't need to become better people, but to become better rested. Why does poor sleep sap willpower? For starters, sleep deprivation repairs how the body and brain use glucose, their main form of energy. When you're tired, your cells have trouble absorbing glucose from the bloodstream. This leaves them underfueled and you exhausted. With your body and brain desperate for energy, you'll start to crave sweets or caffeine. But even if you try to refuel with sugar or coffee, your body and brain won't get the energy they need because they won't be able to use it efficiently. This is bad news for self-control, one of the most energy-expensive tasks your brain can spend its limited fuel on. Your prefrontal cortex, that energy-hungry area of the brain, bears the brunt of this personal energy crisis. Sleep researchers even have a cute nickname for this state, mild prefrontal dysfunction. Shortchange your sleep, and you wake up with temporary Phineas Gage-like damage to your brain. Studies show that the effects of sleep deprivation on your brain are equivalent to being mildly intoxicated, a state that many of us can attest to does little for self-control. When your prefrontal cortex is impaired, it loses control over other regions of the brain. Ordinarily, it can quiet the alarm system of the brain to help you manage stress and cravings. But 
A single night of sleep deprivation creates a disconnect between these two regions of your brain. Unchecked, the alarm system overreacts to ordinary everyday stress. The body gets stuck in a physiological fight-or-flight state with the accompanying high levels of stress hormones and decreased heart rate variability. The result? More stress and less self-control. The good news is, all of this is reversible. When the sleep-deprived catch a better night's sleep, their brain scans no longer show signs of prefrontal cortex impairment. In fact, they look just like the brains of the well-rested. Addiction researchers have even started to experiment with sleep intervention as a treatment for substance abuse. In one study, five minutes of breath-focused meditation a day helped recovering addicts fall asleep. This added one hour a night to their quality sleep time, which in turn significantly reduced the risk of drug use relapse. So, for better willpower, go to sleep already. Willpower Experiment If you've been running short on sleep, there are many ways to recharge your self-control. Even if you can't get eight hours of uninterrupted sleep every night, small changes can make a big difference. Some studies show that a single good night's sleep restores brain function to an optimal level. So, if you've had a week of late to bed and early to rise, catching up on the weekend can help replenish your willpower. Other research suggests that getting enough sleep early in the week can build a reserve that counteracts sleep deprivation later in the week. And some studies suggest that it's the number of consecutive hours you spend awake that matters most. In a crunch, taking a short nap can restore focus and self-control even if you didn't get much sleep the night before. Try one of these strategies, catching up, stocking up, or napping, to undo or prevent the effects of sleep deprivation. When sleep is the willpower challenge. One of my students, Lisa, was trying to break the habit of staying up late. At 29, she was single and lived alone, which meant there was no one setting a sleep schedule for her. She woke up each morning exhausted and dragged herself through her job as an office administrator. She relied on caffeinated diet soda to get through the day, and to her embarrassment, she sometimes nodded off in meetings. By 5 o'clock, she was wired and tired, a combination that left her cranky, distracted, and craving drive through fast food. The first week of class, she announced that going to sleep earlier would be her willpower challenge for the class. The next week, she reported no success. Around dinner time, she would tell herself, I will definitely go to sleep earlier tonight. But by 11 p.m., that resolve was nowhere to be found. I asked Lisa to describe the process of how she wasn't going to bed early. She told me about the million and one things that each seemed more critically urgent the later the night got. Browsing Facebook, cleaning the fridge, tackling the stack of junk mail, even watching infomercials. None of this stuff was actually urgent, but late at night, it felt strangely compelling. Lisa was hooked on doing one more thing before she went to sleep. The later it got, and the more tired Lisa got, the less she was able to resist the immediate gratification that each task promised. When we redefined getting more sleep as a won't power challenge, things turned around. Forcing herself to go to sleep wasn't the real problem. It was pulling herself away from the things keeping her up. 
Lisa set a rule of turning off her computer and TV and not starting any new projects after 11 p.m. This rule was exactly what she needed to feel how tired she really was and give herself permission to go to bed by midnight. With seven hours of sleep each night, Lisa found that infomercials and other late-night temptations lost their appeal. Within a couple of weeks, she had the energy to tackle the next willpower challenge, cutting back on diet soda and drive through dinners. If you know you could use more sleep but find yourself staying up late anyway, consider what you are saying yes to instead of sleep. This same willpower rule affects to any task you are avoiding or putting off. When you can't find the will, you might need to find the won't. The Costs of Too Much Self-Control The willpower instinct is a wonderful thing. Thanks to the brain's hard work and the cooperation of your body, your choices can be driven by long-term goals, not panic or the need for instant gratification. But self-control doesn't come cheap. All of these mental tasks, focusing your attention, weighing compelling goals, and quieting stress and cravings, require energy real physical energy from your body, in the same way that your muscles require energy to fight or flee in an emergency. Everyone knows that too much stress is bad for your health. When you are chronically stressed, your body continues to divert energy from long-term needs, such as digestion, reproduction, healing injuries, and fighting off illness, to respond to the constant stream of apparent emergencies. This is how chronic stress can lead to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, chronic back pain, infertility, or getting every cold and flu that comes around. That you never actually have to fight or flee these ordinary stresses, good luck trying to outrun or mortally wound your credit card debt, is beside the point. So long as your brain keeps identifying an external threat, your mind and body will be thrown into a state of high alert and impulsive action. Because self-control also demands high levels of energy, some scientists speculate that chronic self-control, like chronic stress, can increase your chances of getting sick by diverting resources from the immune system. You heard it here first. Too much willpower can actually be bad for your health. You may be thinking, what about all that stuff in the first chapter about how important willpower is for health? Now you're telling me self-control is going to make me sick? Well, maybe. Just like some stress is necessary for a happy and productive life, some self-control is needed. But, just like living under chronic stress is unhealthy, trying to control every aspect of your thoughts, emotions, and behavior is a toxic strategy. It is too big a burden for your biology. Self-control, like the stress response, evolved as a nifty strategy for responding to specific challenges. But just as with stress, we run into trouble when self-control becomes chronic and unrelenting. We need time to recover from the exertion of self-control, and we sometimes need to spend our mental and physical resources elsewhere. To preserve both your health and your happiness, you need to give up the pursuit of willpower perfection. Even as you strengthen your self-control, you cannot control everything you think, feel, say, and do. You will have to choose your willpower battles wisely. Willpower Experiment Relax to Restore Your Willpower Reserve One of the best ways to recover from stress and the daily self-control demands of your life 
is relaxation. Relaxing, even for just a few minutes, increases heart rate variability by activating the parasympathetic nervous system and quieting the sympathetic nervous system. It also shifts the body into a state of repair and healing, enhancing your immune function and lowering stress hormones. Studies show that taking time for relaxation every day can protect your health while also increasing your willpower reserve. For example, people who regularly practiced relaxation had a healthier physiological response to two stressful willpower challenges, a test of mental focus and a test of pain endurance, keeping one foot immersed in a pan of 39-degree Fahrenheit water. Listeners, please do not try this at home. Athletes who relax through deep breathing and physical rest recover more quickly from a grueling training session, reducing stress hormones and oxidative damage to their bodies. We're not talking about zoning out with a television or relaxing with a glass of wine and a huge meal. The kind of relaxation that boosts willpower is true physical and mental rest that triggers what Harvard Medical School cardiologist Herbert Benson calls the physiological relaxation response. Your heart rate and breathing slow down. Your blood pressure drops and your muscles release held tension. Your brain takes a break from planning the future or analyzing the past. To trigger this relaxation response, lie down on your back and slightly elevate your legs with a pillow under the knees or come into whatever is the most comfortable position for you to rest in. Close your eyes and take a few deep breaths, allowing your belly to rise and fall. If you feel any tension in your body, you can intentionally squeeze or contract that muscle, then let go of the effort. For example, if you notice tension in your hands and fingers, squeeze your hands into fists, and then relax them into open hands. If you notice tension in your forehead or jaw, scrunch up your eyes and face, then stretch your mouth wide open before relaxing the face completely. Stay here for five to ten minutes, enjoying the fact that there is nothing to do but breathe. If you're worried about falling asleep, set an alarm. Make this a daily practice, especially when you're dealing with high levels of stress or willpower demands. Relaxation will help your body recover from the physiological effects of chronic stress or heroic self-control. One Nation Under Stress Many of us come to the topic of willpower with ideas about what it is. A personality trait, a virtue, something you either have or you don't, maybe a kind of brute force you muster up in difficult situations. But science is painting a very different picture of willpower. It's an evolved capacity and an instinct that everyone has, a careful calibration of what's happening in your brain and body, We've also seen that if you are stressed or depressed, your brain and body may not cooperate. Willpower can be disrupted by sleep deprivation, poor diet, a sedentary lifestyle, and a host of other factors that sap your energy or keep your brain and body stuck in a chronic stress response. To every doctor, diet guru, or nagging spouse convinced that willpower is just a matter of making up your mind, this research should be a reality check. Yes, your mind is important, but your body also needs to get on board. Science also points to a critical insight. Stress is the enemy of willpower. 
So often we believe that stress is the only way to get things done. And we even look for ways to increase stress, such as waiting until the last minute or criticizing ourselves for being lazy or out of control to motivate ourselves. Or we use stress to try to motivate others, turning up the heat at work or coming down hard at home. This may seem to work in the short term, but in the long term, nothing drains willpower faster than stress. The biology of stress and the biology of self-control are simply incompatible. Both the fight-or-flight and the pause-and-plan responses are about energy management, but they redirect your energy and attention in very different ways. The fight-or-flight response floods the body with energy to act instinctively and steals it from the areas of the brain needed for wise decision-making. The pause-and-plan response sends that energy to the brain, and not just anywhere in the brain, but specifically to the self-control center, the prefrontal cortex. Stress encourages you to focus on immediate, short-term goals and outcomes, but self-control requires keeping the big picture in mind. Learning how to better manage your stress is one of the most important things you can do to improve your willpower. In recent years, a number of high-profile pundits have claimed that Americans have lost their collective willpower. If this is true, it may have little to do with the loss of core American values, as the pundits have claimed, and more to do with the increased levels of stress and fear in today's society. A 2010 national survey by the American Psychological Association found that 75% of people in the United States experience high levels of stress. It's not surprising, given the events of the last decade, from terrorist attacks and flu epidemics to environmental disasters, natural disasters, unemployment, and near-economic collapse. These national stresses take a toll on our physiology and self-control. Researchers at Yale University School of Medicine found that during the week after September 11, 2001, patients' heart rate variability decreased significantly. We were a nation overwhelmed, and it's not surprising that rates of drinking, smoking, and drug use increased for months following the attacks of 9-11. The same pattern emerged during the height of the economic crisis of 2008 and 2009. Americans reported indulging in unhealthy foods more often to cope with the stress, and smokers reported smoking more cigarettes and giving up attempts to quit. We're also an increasingly sleep-deprived nation. According to a 2008 study by the National Sleep Foundation, American adults now get two hours less sleep per night than the average in 1960. Our nation's sleeping habits may be creating an epidemic of poor self-control and focus. Some experts believe that the decrease in average sleep time is also one of the reasons obesity rates have soared over the same time period. Obesity rates are much higher among those who sleep for less than six hours a night, in part because sleep deprivation interferes with how the brain and body use energy. Researchers have also found that too little sleep creates impulse control and attention problems that mimic attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. It may be that children's sleep habits, which typically mirror their parents, despite their even greater need for sleep, are contributing to the dramatic rise in the diagnosis of this disorder. If we are serious about tackling the biggest challenges that face us, we need to take more seriously the tasks of managing stress and taking better care of ourselves. Tired, stressed-out people 
start from a tremendous disadvantage, and we are a tired, stressed-out nation. Our bad habits, from overeating to undersleeping, don't just reflect a lack of self-control. By draining our energy and creating more stress, they are stealing our self-control. Under the Microscope Stress and Self-Control This week, test the theory that stress, whether physical or psychological, is the enemy of self-control. How does being worried or overworked affect your choices? Does being hungry or tired drain your willpower? What about physical pain and illness? Or emotions? Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to our content. Remember to follow us here on the platform. We prepared a graphic of the book with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps so you know everything about the book in minutes. Like anger, loneliness, and sadness. Notice when stress strikes throughout the day or week. Then, Watch what happens to your self-control. Do you experience cravings? Lose your temper? Put off things you know you should do? The last word. When our willpower challenges overwhelm us, it's tempting to assign the blame to who we are. Weak, lazy, willpowerless wimps. But more often than not, our brains and bodies are simply in the wrong state for self-control. When we're in a state of chronic stress, it's our most impulsive selves who face our willpower challenges. To succeed at our willpower challenges, we need to find the state of mind and body that puts our energy towards self-control, not self-defense. That means giving ourselves what we need to recover from stress and making sure we have the energy to be our best selves. Chapter Summary The Idea Willpower is a biological instinct like stress, that evolved to help us protect ourselves from ourselves. Under the Microscope What is the threat? For your willpower challenge, identify the inner impulse that needs to be restrained. Stress and Self-Control Notice when stress strikes throughout the day or week and watch what happens to your self-control. Do you experience cravings? Lose your temper? Put off things you know you should do? Willpower Experiments Breathe your way to self-control. Slow down your breathing for four to six breaths per minute to shift into the physiological state of self-control. The five-minute green willpower fill-up. Get active outdoors, even just a walk around the block, to reduce stress, improve your mood, and boost motivation. Undo the effects of sleep deprivation with a nap or one good night's sleep. Relax to restore your willpower reserve. Lie down, breathe deeply, and let the physiological relaxation response help you recover from the demands of self-control and daily stress. Chapter 3 Too Tired to Resist Why Self-Control is like a muscle. It's a familiar sight on college campuses across the country. Haggard-looking students slump over library desks and laptops. 
Zombie-like, they lurch across campuses in search of caffeine and sugar. The gyms are empty, beds unslept in. At Stanford, it's called Dead Week, the seven-day final examination period at the end of every quarter. Students cram their heads with facts and formulas, pull all-nighters, and push themselves to study hard enough to make up for ten weeks of dorm parties and frisbee golf. However, studies show that these heroic efforts come at a cost, beyond the nightly pizza deliveries and pricey espresso drinks. During final exam periods, many students seem to lose the capacity to control anything other than their study habits. They smoke more cigarettes and ditch the salad bar for the french fry line. They're prone to emotional outbursts and bike accidents. They skip showering and shaving and rarely make the effort to change clothes. Dear God, they even stop flossing. Welcome to one of the most robust, if troubling, findings from the science of self-control. People who use their willpower seem to run out of it. Smokers who go without a cigarette for 24 hours are more likely to binge on ice cream. Drinkers who resist their favorite cocktail become physically weaker on a test of endurance. Perhaps most disturbingly, people who are on a diet are more likely to cheat on their spouse. It's as if there's only so much willpower to go around. Once exhausted, you are left defenseless against temptation, or at least disadvantaged. This finding has important implications for your willpower challenges. Modern life is full of self-control demands that can drain your willpower. Researchers have found that self-control is highest in the morning and steadily deteriorates over the course of the day. By the time you get to the stuff that really matters to you, like going to the gym after work, tackling the big project, keeping your cool when your kids turn the couch into a finger paint masterpiece, or staying away from the emergency pack of cigarettes stashed in your drawer, you may find yourself out of willpower. And if you try to control or change too many things at once, you may exhaust yourself completely. This failure says nothing about your virtue, just about the nature of willpower itself. The Muscle Model of Self-Control The first scientist to systematically observe and test the limits of willpower was Roy Baumeister, a psychologist at Florida State University with a long-standing reputation for studying puzzling phenomena. He had tackled questions like why sports teams show a home court disadvantage during championships and why good-looking criminals are more likely to be found not guilty by a jury. His work has even touched on satanic ritual abuse, sexual masochism, and UFO abductions, topics that would scare away most researchers. You could argue, however, that his most frightening findings have little to do with the occult and everything to do with ordinary human weakness. For the last 15 years, he has been asking people to exert their willpower in the laboratory, turning down cookies, tuning out distractions, holding back their anger, and holding their arms in ice water. In study after study, no matter what the task he used, people's self-control deteriorated over time. A concentration task didn't just lead to worse attention over time, it depleted physical strength. Controlling emotions didn't just lead to emotional outbursts. It made people more willing to spend money on something they didn't need. Resisting tempting sweets didn't just trigger cravings for chocolate. It prompted procrastination. It was as if every act of willpower was draining from the same source of strength, 
leaving people weaker with each successful act of self-control. These observations led Baumeister to an intriguing hypothesis that self-control is like a muscle. When used, it gets tired. If you don't rest the muscle, you can run out of strength entirely, like an athlete who pushes himself to exhaustion. Since that early hypothesis, dozens of studies by Baumeister's laboratory and other research teams have supported the idea that willpower is a limited resource. Trying to control your temper, stick to a budget, or refuse seconds all tap the same source of strength. And because every act of willpower depletes willpower, using self-control can lead to losing self-control. Refraining from gossiping at work may make it more difficult to resist the cafeteria dessert table. And if you do turn down that tempting tiramisu, you may find it more difficult to focus when you're back at your desk. By the time you're driving home and the idiot in the next lane almost runs into you because he's looking at his cell phone, yeah, that'll be you screaming out your window that he should be sure to program 911 into his phone, the jackass. Many things you wouldn't typically think of as requiring willpower also rely on and exhaust this limited well of strength. Trying to impress a date or fit into a corporate culture that doesn't share your values. Navigating a stressful commute or sitting through another boring meeting. Anytime you have to fight an impulse, filter out distractions, weigh competing goals, or make yourself do something difficult, you use a little more of your willpower strength. This even includes trivial decisions like choosing between the 20 brands of laundry detergent at the market. If your brain and body need to pause and plan, you're flexing a metaphorical muscle of self-control. The muscle model is at once reassuring and discouraging. It's nice to know that not every willpower failure reveals our innate inadequacies. Sometimes they point to how hard we've been working. But while it's comforting to know that we can't expect ourselves to be perfect, this research also points to some serious problems. If willpower is limited, are we doomed to fail at our biggest goals? And thanks to the near-constant self-control demands of our society, are we destined to be a nation of willpower-drained zombies, wandering the world seeking instant gratification? Luckily, there are things you can do to both overcome willpower exhaustion and increase your self-control strength. That's because the muscle model doesn't just help us see why we fail when we're tired. It also shows us how to train self-control. We'll start by considering why willpower gets exhausted. Then we'll take a lesson from endurance athletes who regularly push past exhaustion and explore training strategies for greater self-control stamina. Under the Microscope The Highs and Lows of Willpower the muscle model of willpower predicts that self-control drains throughout the day. This week, pay attention to when you have the most willpower and when you are most likely to give in. Do you wake up with willpower and steadily drain it? Or is there another time of the day when you find yourself recharged and refreshed? You can use this self-knowledge to plan your schedule wisely and limit temptation when you know you'll be the most depleted. A would-be entrepreneur puts first things first. When Susan woke up at 5.30 a.m., the first thing she did was check her work email at her kitchen table. She would spend a good 45 minutes over coffee responding to questions and identifying her priorities for the day. 
Then she headed off on an hour-long commute to put in a 10-hour day as a key account manager for a large commercial shipping company. Her job was demanding. Conflicts to be negotiated, egos to be soothed, fires to be put out. By 6 p.m., she was already drained, but more often than not, she felt obligated to stay late or go out for dinner or drinks with co-workers. Susan wanted to start her own consulting business and was taking steps to prepare herself financially and professionally, but most evenings she was too tired to make much progress on her business plan, and she feared that she'd be stuck in her job forever. When Susan analyzed how she was spending her willpower, it was obvious that her job was getting 100%, starting with the early morning email and ending with her long commute home. The kitchen table email session was an old habit from when she was new to the job and eager to exceed expectations. But now, there was no good reason that those emails couldn't wait until she got to the office at 8 a.m. Susan decided that the only time of day she was likely to have the mental energy to pursue her own goals was before her workday. She made it her new routine to spend the first hour of the day building her business, not taking care of everyone else's needs. This was a smart move for Susan, who needed to put her willpower where her goals were. It also demonstrates an important willpower rule. If you never seem to have the time and energy for your I will challenge, schedule it for when you have the most strength. Why is self-control limited? Obviously, we don't have an actual self-control muscle hidden underneath our biceps, keeping our hands from reaching for dessert or our wallet. We do, however, have something like a self-control muscle in our brain. Even though the brain is an organ, not a muscle, it does get tired from repeated acts of self-control. Neuroscientists have found that with each use of willpower, the self-control system of the brain becomes less active. Just like a tired runner's legs can give out, the brain seems to run out of the strength to keep going. Matthew Galliott, a young psychologist working with Roy Baumeister, wondered whether a tired brain was essentially a problem of energy. Self-control is an energy-expensive task for the brain, and our internal energy supply is limited. After all, it's not like we have an intravenous sugar drip in our prefrontal cortex. Galliott asked himself, could willpower exhaustion simply be the result of the brain running out of energy? To find out, he decided to test whether giving people energy in the form of sugar could restore exhausted willpower. He brought people into the laboratory to perform a wide range of self-control tasks, from ignoring distractions to controlling their emotions. Before and after each task, he measured their blood sugar levels. The more a person's blood sugar dropped after a self-control task, the worse his performance was on the next task. It appeared as if self-control was draining the body of energy, and this energy loss was weakening self-control. Galliott then gave the willpower-drained participants a glass of lemonade. Half of them received sugar-sweetened lemonade to restore blood sugar. The other half received a placebo drink that was artificially sweetened and would not supply any usable energy. Amazingly, boosting blood sugar restored willpower. The participants who drank sugar-sweetened lemonade showed improved self-control, while the self-control of those who drank the placebo lemonade continued to deteriorate. Low blood sugar levels turn out to predict a wide range of willpower failures, from giving up on a difficult test to lashing out at others when you're angry. Galliott 
now a professor at Zirva University in Turkey, has found that people with low blood sugar are also more likely to rely on stereotypes and less likely to donate money to charity or help a stranger. It is as if running low on energy biases us to be the worst versions of ourselves. In contrast, giving participants a sugar boost turns them back into the best versions of themselves, more persistent and less impulsive, more thoughtful and less selfish. Well, as you can imagine, this is just about the most best-received finding I've ever described in class. The implications are at once counterintuitive and delightful. Sugar is your new best friend. Eating a candy bar or drinking soda can be an act of self-control, or at least restoring self-control. My students love these studies and are only too happy to test the hypothesis themselves. One student used a steady supply of Skittles to get through a difficult project. Another kept a tin of Altoids, one of the last breath mints to contain real sugar, in his pocket, popping them during long meetings to outlast his colleagues. I applaud their enthusiasm for translating science into action and empathize with their sweet tooth. And I even confess that for years I brought candy to every introduction to psychology class, hoping to get the undergraduate students focused and off Facebook. If sugar were truly the secret to more willpower, I'm sure I'd have a runaway bestseller on my hands and a lot of eager corporate sponsors. But as my students and I were trying our own willpower replenishing experiments, some scientists, including Galliot, started to raise some smart questions. How much energy exactly was getting used up during acts of mental self-control? And did restoring that energy really require consuming a substantial amount of sugar? University of Pennsylvania psychologist Robert Kurzban has argued that the actual amount of energy your brain needs to exert self-control is less than half a tic-tac per minute. This may be more than the brain uses for other mental tasks, but it is far less than your body uses when it exercises. So, assuming you have the resources to walk around the block without collapsing, the absolute demands of self-control couldn't possibly deplete your entire body's store of energy. And, surely, it wouldn't require refueling with a sugar-laden 100-calorie drink. Why, then, does the brain's increased energy consumption during self-control seem to deplete willpower so quickly? Energy Crisis To answer this question, it may be helpful to recall the American banking crisis of 2009. After the 2008 financial meltdown, banks received an influx of money from the government. These funds were supposed to help the banks cover their own financial obligations so they could start lending again. But the banks refused to lend money to small businesses and individual borrowers. They weren't confident in the money supply, so they hoarded the resources they had. Stingy bastards. It turns out that your brain can be a bit of a stingy bastard, too. The human brain has, at any given time, a very small supply of energy. It can store some energy in its cells, but it is mostly dependent on a steady stream of glucose circulating in the body's bloodstream. Special glucose-detecting brain cells are constantly monitoring the availability of energy. When the brain detects a drop in available energy, it gets a little nervous. What if it runs out of energy? Like the banks, it may decide to stop spending and save what resources it has. It will keep itself on a tight energy budget unwilling to spend its full supply of energy. The first expense to be cut? Self-control, one of the most energy-expensive tasks the brain performs. 
To conserve energy, the brain may become reluctant to give you the full mental resources you need to resist temptation, focus your attention, or control your emotions. University of South Dakota researchers X.T. Wang, a behavioral economist, and Robert Dvorak, a psychologist, have proposed an energy budget model of self-control. They argue that the brain treats energy like money. It will spend energy when resources are high, but save energy when resources are dropping. To test this idea, they invited 65 adults, ranging in age from 19 to 51, into the laboratory for a test of their willpower. Participants were given a series of choices between two rewards, such as $120 tomorrow or $450 in a month. One reward was always smaller, but participants would get it faster than the larger reward. Psychologists consider this a classic test of self-control, as it pits immediate gratification against more favorable long-term consequences. At the end of the study, the participants had the opportunity to win one of their chosen rewards. This ensured that they were motivated to make real decisions based on what they wanted to win. Before the choosing began, the researchers measured participants' blood sugar levels to determine the baseline status of available funds for self-control. After the first round of decisions, participants were given either a regular sugary soda to boost blood sugar levels or a zero-calorie diet soda. The researchers then measured blood sugar levels again and asked the participants to make another series of choices. The participants who drank the regular soda showed a sharp increase in blood sugar. They also became more likely to delay gratification for the bigger reward. In contrast, blood sugar dropped among participants who drank the diet soda. These participants were now more likely to choose the immediate gratification of the quicker, smaller reward. Importantly, it wasn't the absolute level of blood sugar that predicted a patient's choices. It was the direction of change. The brain asked, is available energy increasing or decreasing? It then made a strategic choice about whether to spend or save that energy. People who are starving shouldn't say no to a snack. The brain may have a second motivation behind its reluctance to exert self-control when the body's energy levels are dropping. Our brains evolved in an environment very different from our own, one in which food supplies were unpredictable. Remember our trip to the Serengeti when you were scavenging for hyena carcasses? Dvorak and Wang argue that the modern human brain may still be using blood sugar levels as a sign of scarcity or abundance in the environment. Are the bushes full of berries or barren? Is dinner dropping dead at our feet, or do we have to chase it across the plains? Is there enough food for everyone, or do we have to compete with bigger and faster hunters and gatherers? Way back when the human brain was taking shape, Dropping blood sugar levels had less to do with whether you'd be using your energy-guzzling prefrontal cortex to resist a cookie, and more to do with whether food was available at all. If you hadn't eaten in a while, your blood sugar level was low. To an energy-monitoring brain, your blood sugar level was an indicator of how likely you were to starve in the near future if you didn't find something to eat, quick. A brain that could bias your decisions toward immediate gratification when sources are scarce, but toward long-term investment when resources are plenty, would be a real asset in a world with an unpredictable food supply. Those who were slower to listen to their hunger or 
too polite to fight for their share, may have found the last bone already scraped clean. In times of food scarcity, early humans who followed their appetites and impulses had a better chance of survival. He who takes the biggest risks, from exploring new land to trying new foods and new mates, is often the most likely to survive, or at least have his genes survive. What appears in our modern world as a loss of control may actually be a vestige of the brain's instinct for strategic risk-taking. To prevent starvation, the brain shifts to a more risk-taking, impulsive state. Indeed, studies show that modern humans are more likely to take any kind of risk when they're hungry. For example, people make riskier investments when they're hungry and are more willing to diversify their mating strategies evolutionary psychology speak for cheating on their partner after a fast. Unfortunately, in modern Western society, this instinct no longer pays off. Internal changes in blood sugar levels rarely signal famine or the need to quickly pass on your genes in case you don't survive winter. But when your blood sugar drops, your brain will still favor short-term thinking and impulsive behavior. Your brain's priority is going to be getting more energy not making sure you make good decisions that are in line with your long-term goals. That means stockbrokers may make some stupid buys before lunch, dieters may be more likely to invest in lottery tickets, and the politician who skips breakfast may find his intern irresistible. Willpower Experiment The Willpower Diet Yes, it's true that a shot of sugar can give you a short-term willpower boost in an emergency. In the long run, though, mainlining sugar is not a good strategy for self-control. During stressful times, it's especially tempting to turn to highly processed, high-fat and high-sugar comfort food. Doing so, however, will lead to a self-control crash and burn. In the long term, blood sugar spikes and crashes can interfere with the body's and brain's ability to use sugar, meaning that you could end up with high blood sugar but low energy as is the case for the millions of Americans with type 2 diabetes. A better plan is to make sure that your body is well-fueled with food that gives you lasting energy. Most psychologists and nutritionists recommend a low-glycemic diet, that is, one that helps you keep your blood sugar steady. Low-glycemic foods include lean proteins, nuts and beans, high-fiber grains and cereals, and most fruits and vegetables basically food that looks like its natural state and doesn't have a ton of added sugar, fat, and chemicals. It may take some self-control to shift in this direction, but whatever steps you take, say, eating a hearty and healthy breakfast during the work week instead of skipping breakfast, or snacking on nuts instead of sugar, will more than pay you back for any willpower you spend making the change. Training the Willpower Muscle any muscle in your body can be made stronger through exercise, whether you're building your biceps by lifting barbells or training your thumbs by text messaging. If self-control is a muscle, even a metaphorical muscle, it should be possible to train it too. As with physical exercise, using your self-control muscle may be tiring, but over time, the workout should make it stronger. Researchers have put this idea to the test with willpower training regimes. We're not talking military boot camp or master cleanses here. These interventions take a simpler approach. 
Challenge the self-control muscle by asking people to control one small thing that they aren't used to controlling. For example, one willpower training program asked participants to create and meet self-imposed deadlines. You can do this for any task you've been putting off, such as cleaning your closet. The deadlines might be week one, open the door and stare at the mess. Week two, tackle anything that's on a hanger. Week three, throw out anything that predates the Reagan administration. Week four, find out if Goodwill accepts skeletons. Week five, well, you get the picture. When the willpower trainees set this kind of schedule for themselves for two months, not only did closets get cleaned and projects completed, but they also improved their diets, exercised more, and cut back on cigarettes, alcohol, and caffeine. It was as if they had strengthened their self-control muscle. Other studies have found that committing to any small, consistent act of self-control, improving your posture, squeezing a hand grip every day to exhaustion, cutting back on sweets, and keeping track of your spending, can increase overall willpower. And while these small self-control exercises may seem inconsequential, they appear to improve the willpower challenges we care about most, including focusing at work, taking good care of our health, resisting temptation, and feeling more in control of our emotions. One study, led by a team of psychologists at Northwestern University, even tested whether two weeks of willpower training could reduce violence against a romantic partner. They randomly assigned 40 adults, ages 18 to 45, all in romantic relationships, to one of three training camps. One was asked to use their non-dominant hand for eating, brushing their teeth, and opening doors. The second group was told to avoid swearing and to say yes instead of yeah. The third group received no special instructions. After two weeks, participants in both self-control groups were less likely to respond to typical triggering events, like jealousy or feeling disrespected by their partner with physical violence. The third group, in contrast, showed no change. Even if you don't personally struggle with physical violence, we all know what it's like to lose our cool and do something out of anger that we later regret. The important muscle action being trained in all these studies isn't the specific willpower challenge of meeting deadlines, using your left hand to open doors, or keeping the F-word to yourself. It's the habit of noticing what you are about to do and choosing to do the more difficult thing instead of the easiest. Through each of these willpower exercises, the brain gets used to pausing before acting. The triviality of the assignments may even help the process. The tasks are challenging, but they're not overwhelming. And while the self-restraints require careful attention, they're unlikely to trigger strong feelings of deprivation. What do you mean I'm not allowed to say, yeah, that's the only thing that gets me through the day? The relative unimportance of the willpower challenges allowed participants to exercise the muscle of self-control without the internal angst that derails so many of our attempts to change. Willpower Experiment A Willpower Workout If you want to put yourself through your own willpower training regime, test the muscle model of self-control with one of the following willpower workouts. Strengthen I Won't Power Commit to not swearing or refraining from any habit of speech, not crossing your legs when you sit, or 
using your non-dominant hand for a daily task like eating or opening doors. Strengthen I will power. Commit to doing something every day, not something you already do, just for the practice of building a habit and not making excuses. It could be calling your mother, meditating for five minutes, or finding one thing in your house that needs to be thrown out or recycled. Strengthen self-monitoring. Formally keep track of something you don't usually pay close attention to. This could be your spending, what you eat, or how much time you spend online or watching TV. You don't need fancy technology. Pencil and paper will do. But if you need some inspiration, the Quantified Self Movement, www.quantifiedself.com, has turned self-tracking into an art and science. For any of these willpower training exercises, you could choose something related to your main willpower challenge. For example, if your goal is to save money, you might keep track of what you spend. If your goal is to exercise more often, you might decide to do 10 sit-ups or push-ups before your morning shower. But even if you don't match this experiment to your biggest goals, the muscle model of self-control suggests that exercising your willpower each day, even in silly or simple ways, will build strength for all your willpower challenges. A candy addict conquers his sweet tooth. Jim, a 38-year-old freelance graphic designer, had what he called a lifelong addiction to sweets. He never met a jelly bean he didn't like. He was intrigued by a study I mentioned in class that found that leaving candy out in a visible place can increase people's general self-control, if they routinely resist the temptation. Jim worked from home and often moved between his office and other rooms in his house. He decided to put a glass jar of jelly beans in the hallway that he would have to pass every time he left or returned to his office. He didn't ban all sweets, but he did institute a no-candy-from-the-candy-jar rule to challenge his self-control muscle. The first day, the instinct to pop a few jelly beans in his mouth was automatic and difficult to stop. But over the week, saying no got easier. Seeing the candy reminded Jim of his goal to exercise his won't power. Surprised by his success, he started stepping away from his desk more often just to get some extra exercise in. Though Jim had initially worried that the visible temptation would exhaust his willpower, he found the process energizing. When he returned to his office after resisting the candy jar, he felt motivated. Jim was astonished that something he thought was completely out of his control could change so quickly when he set a small challenge for himself and committed to it. When you're trying to make a big change or transform an old habit, look for a small way to practice self-control that strengthens your willpower but doesn't overwhelm it completely. How real are the limits of self-control? Whether you look at the science or your own life for evidence, it's clear that we humans have a tendency to run out of willpower. But one thing that isn't clear is whether we run out of power or whether we just run out of will. Is it really impossible for a smoker to stick to a budget when she's trying to give up cigarettes? Is the dieter depriving himself of his favorite foods really too weak to resist an illicit affair? There is always a difference between what is difficult and what is impossible and the limits of self-control could reflect either. 
To answer this question, we need to step back for a moment from the metaphorical muscle of self-control and take a closer look at why actual muscles, such as the ones in your arms and legs, get tired and give up. Making the finish line Halfway through the 26.2-mile run for her first Ironman triathlon, 30-year-old Kara felt great. She had already survived the 2.4-mile swim and the 112-mile bike ride, and running was her best event. She was going faster than she'd expected she'd be able to at this point in the race. Then she hit the turnaround point of the run, and the physical reality of what she had done hit her body hard. Everything hurt from her aching shoulders to the blisters on her feet. Her legs felt heavy and hollow, as if they didn't have the strength to go on. It was as if a switch in her body had been flipped, telling her, You're done. Her optimism deflated, and she began to think to herself, This is not going to end as well as it began. But despite the feeling of exhaustion that made it seem as though her feet and legs would not cooperate, they did. Whenever she thought, I can't do this, she said to herself, you are doing this, and just kept putting one foot in front of the other, all the way to the finish line. Kara's ability to finish the triathlon is a perfect example of how deceptive fatigue can be. Exercise psychologists used to believe that when our bodies give up, it is because they literally cannot keep working. Fatigue was muscle failure, pure and simple. The muscles run out of energy stores. They can't take in enough oxygen to metabolize the energy they have. The pH level of the bloodstream becomes too acidic or too alkaline. All these explanations made sense in theory, but no one could ever prove that this was what was causing exercisers to slow down and give up. Timothy Noakes, a professor of exercise and sports science at the University of Cape Town, had a different idea. Noakes is known in the athletic world for challenging deeply held beliefs. For example, he helped show that drinking too many fluids during endurance competitions could kill an athlete by diluting the essential salts in the body. Noakes is an ultramarathon competitor himself, and he became interested in a little-known theory put forth in 1924 by Nobel Prize-winning physiologist Archibald Hill. Hill had proposed that exercise fatigue might be caused not by muscle failure, but by an overprotective monitor in the brain that wanted to prevent exhaustion. When the body was working hard and putting heavy demands on the heart, this monitor, Hill called it the governor, would step in and slow things down. Hill didn't guess at how the brain produced the feeling of fatigue that led athletes to give up, but Noakes was intrigued by the implication. Physical exhaustion was a trick played on the body by the mind. If this was true, it meant that the physical limits of an athlete were far beyond what the first message from the body to give up suggested. Noakes, with several colleagues, began to review evidence of what happens to endurance athletes under extreme conditions. They found no evidence for physiological failure happening within the muscles. Instead, it appeared that the brain was telling the muscles to stop. The brain sensing an increased heart rate and rapidly depleting energy supply, literally puts the brakes on the body. At the same time, the brain creates an overwhelming feeling of fatigue that has little to do with the muscle's capacity to keep working. As Noakes puts it, fatigue should no longer be considered a physical event, but rather a sensation or emotion.
Most of us interpret exhaustion as an objective indicator that we cannot continue. This theory says it is just a feeling generated by the brain to motivate us to stop, in much the same way that the feeling of anxiety can stop us from doing something dangerous, and the feeling of disgust can stop us from eating something that will make us sick. But because fatigue is only an early warning system, extreme athletes can routinely push past what seems to the rest of us like the natural physical limits of the body. These athletes recognize that the first wave of fatigue is never a real limit, and with sufficient motivation, they can transcend it. What does this have to do with our original problem of college students cramming their heads with knowledge and their mouths with junk food? Or with dieters cheating on their spouses and office workers losing their focus? Some scientists now believe that the limits of self-control are just like the physical limits of the body. We often feel depleted of willpower before we actually are. In part, we can thank a brain motivated to conserve energy. Just as the brain may tell the body's muscles to slow down when it fears physical exhaustion, the brain may put the brakes on its own energy-expensive exercise of the prefrontal cortex. This doesn't mean we're out of willpower. We just need to muster up the motivation to use it. Our beliefs about what we are capable of may determine whether we give up or soldier on. Stanford psychologists have found that some people do not believe the feeling of mental fatigue that follows a challenging act of self-control. These willpower athletes also do not show the typical deterioration of self-control that the muscle model predicts, at least not during the types of moderate willpower challenges that researchers can ethically test in the laboratory. Based on these findings, the Stanford psychologists have proposed an idea as jarring to the field of self-control research as Noakes's claims were to the field of exercise physiology. The widely observed scientific finding that self-control is limited may reflect people's beliefs about willpower, not their true physical and mental limits. The research on this idea is just beginning, and no one is claiming that humans have an unlimited capacity for self-control. But it is appealing to think that we often have more willpower than we believe we do. It also raises the possibility that we can, like athletes, push past the feeling of willpower exhaustion to make it to the finish line of our own willpower challenges. Under the microscope, is your exhaustion real? All too often, we use the first feeling of fatigue as a reason to skip exercise, snap at our spouses, procrastinate a little longer, or order a pizza instead of cooking a healthy meal. To be sure, the demands of life really do drain our willpower, and perfect self-control is a fool's quest. But you may have more willpower than the first impulse to give in would suggest. The next time you find yourself too tired to exert self-control, challenge yourself to go beyond that first feeling of fatigue. Keep in mind that it's also possible to overtrain, and if you find yourself constantly feeling drained, you may need to consider whether you have been running yourself to real exhaustion. When there's a want, there's a will. When Kara, the first-time triathlete, felt too exhausted to continue, she remembered how much she wanted to finish and imagined the crowd cheering her across the finish line. It turns out that the metaphorical muscle of willpower can also be coaxed into persevering longer with the right inspiration. University at Albany psychologists Mark Muraven and Elisaveta Slesareva 
have tested a number of motivations on willpower-drained students. Not surprisingly, money helps undergraduates find a reserve of willpower, and they will do for cash what moments earlier they had been too exhausted to do. Imagine someone offering you $100 to say no to a package of Girl Scout cookies. Not so irresistible now, huh? Self-control also surged when students were told that doing their best would help researchers discover a cure for Alzheimer's disease, not unlike endurance athletes who race for a cure. Finally, the mere promise that practice would improve performance on a difficult task helped the students push past willpower exhaustion. While this is a less obvious motivator, it's one that plays a big role in determining whether or not people stick with difficult changes in real life. If you think that not smoking is going to be as hard one year from now as it is that first day of nicotine withdrawal, when you would claw your own eyes out for a cigarette, you're much more likely to give up. But if you can imagine a time when saying no will be second nature, you'll be more willing to stick out the temporary misery. Willpower Experiment What's your want power? When your willpower is running low, find renewed strength by tapping into your want power. For your biggest willpower challenge, consider the following motivations. 1. How will you benefit from succeeding at this challenge? What is the payoff for you personally? Greater health, happiness, freedom, financial security, or success? 2. Who else will benefit if you succeed at this challenge? Surely there are others who depend on you and are affected by your choices. How does your behavior influence your family, friends, co-workers, employees or employer, and community? How would your success help them? 3. Imagine that this challenge will get easier for you over time if you are willing to do what is difficult now. Can you imagine what your life will be like and how you will feel about yourself as you make progress on this challenge? Is some discomfort now worth it if you know it is only a temporary part of your progress? As you face your challenges this week, ask yourself which motivation holds the most power for you in that moment. Are you willing to do something difficult for others when you might not for yourself? Is the dream of a better future or the fear of a terrible fate the only thing that keeps you going. When you find your biggest want power, the thing that gives you strength when you feel weak, bring it to mind whenever you find yourself most tempted to give in or give up. A frustrated mom finds her want power. Erin was a stay-at-home mom of twin boys going through the terrible twos. She was exhausted by the demands of parenting and frazzled by the boys' discovery of the word no. She frequently found herself pushed to her breaking point, losing her cool with the twins over minor but endless battles. Her willpower challenge for the class was learning how to stay calm when she was ready to erupt. When Erin thought about her biggest motivation for controlling her temper, the obvious answer seemed to be to be a better parent. In the moment of frustration, however, this motivation wasn't working. She would remember that she wanted to be a better parent, but this made her even more frustrated. Erin realized that an even bigger motivation was the desire to enjoy being a parent, which is not exactly the same thing as being a better parent. Erin was yelling out of frustration, not just for what the boys were doing, 
but also for the many ways she felt she wasn't living up to her ideal of the perfect mom. Half the time she was angry at herself, but she was taking it out on her sons. She also resented giving up her job, where she felt very effective, for something that made her feel so out of control. Reminding herself that she wasn't a perfect mom did nothing to give her more self-control. It just made her feel worse. To find the willpower not to explode, Erin had to realize that staying calm was as much for herself as it was for her sons. It wasn't fun to yell, and she didn't like who she was when she lost control. She was getting so frustrated by the gap between her ideals and the reality of daily life that she had started to question whether she even wanted to be a parent. And Aaron wanted to be a parent. Taking the effort to stop, breathe, and find a less stressful response was not just about giving her sons a better mom. It was about enjoying being with her sons and feeling good about what she had given up to be a stay-at-home mom. With this insight, Erin found that it was easier to keep her cool. Not yelling at her boys became a way of not yelling at herself and of finding the joy in the messy reality of mommyhood. Sometimes our strongest motivation is not what we think it is or think it should be. If you're trying to change a behavior to please someone else or be the right kind of person, see if there is another want that holds more power for you. Everyday Distractions and the Collapse of Civilization We've seen ample evidence that the self-control demands of everyday life can drain the willpower we need to resist ordinary, everyday temptations like cookies and cigarettes. This, of course, is not good news. But as much as these temptations threaten our personal goals, they are small potatoes compared with the collective consequences of a society in which most people are chronically drained of willpower. One of the most troubling studies of willpower fatigue raised the stakes by using a public goods measure of self-control called the forest game. In this economic simulation, players became owners of a timber company for a game period of 25 years. They were given 500 acres the first year and were told that the forest would grow at a rate of 10% each year. In any given year, each owner could cut down up to 100 acres. For every acre a player cut down, they would be paid six cents. Don't worry about the exact math, but under these terms, it makes the most economic, not to mention environmental sense, to allow the forest to grow rather than to cut it down and sell it off quickly. However, this strategy requires patience and the willingness to cooperate with other players, so no one tries to chop down the whole forest to make a quick buck. Before the game, some groups of players completed a self-control task that required blocking out mental distractions, a classic willpower depletion setup. They came to the game a bit willpower exhausted. In the game, these players went on to decimate their forests for short-term financial gain. By the tenth year in the simulation, they were down from 500 to 62 acres. By year 15, the forest was completely destroyed and the simulation had to be ended early. The players had not cooperated with each other. They had defaulted to a take-what-you-can-get-before-the-others-sell-it strategy. In contrast, players who had not performed the distraction task still had a forest when the simulation ended at 25 years, and they had made more money while saving a few trees. Cooperation, economic success, environmental stewardship, 
I don't know about you, but I know which players I'd put in charge of my forest, business, or country. The forest game is just a simulation, but one cannot help being reminded of the eerily similar demise of the Easter Island forest. For centuries, the lush, densely forested island in the Pacific Ocean supported a thriving civilization. But as the population grew, the island's inhabitants started cutting down trees for more land and wood. By the year 800 CE, they were cutting down trees faster than the forest could regenerate. By the 1500s, the forest was wiped out, along with many species the inhabitants depended on for food. Starvation and cannibalism became widespread. By the late 1800s, 97% of the population had died or left the barren island. Since then, many people have wondered, what were the residents of Easter Island thinking as they destroyed their forests and society? Couldn't they see the long-term consequences of what they were doing? We can't imagine ourselves making such obviously short-sighted decisions, but we shouldn't be so sure. Humans have a natural tendency to focus on immediate gains, and changing course to prevent future disaster takes enormous self-discipline from all members of a society. It's not just a matter of caring. Change requires doing. In the forest game study, all the players expressed the same values of cooperation and the desire to protect the long-term good. The willpower-depleted players just didn't act on those values. The psychologists who ran this study suggest that people who are willpower-depleted cannot be counted on to make good decisions for society. This is a troubling claim, given what we know about how easy it is to exhaust willpower and how many minor decisions in our daily lives demand self-control. We are not going to solve national or global crises like economic growth, health care, human rights, and climate change if we are exhausted by grocery shopping and dealing with difficult co-workers. As individuals, we can take steps to strengthen our personal self-control, and this will make no small difference in our personal lives. Knowing how to strengthen the limited self-control of a nation is a trickier thing. Rather than hope that we as a nation develop more willpower in order to meet our biggest challenges, our best bet might be to take self-control out of the equation whenever possible, or at least reduce the self-control demands of doing the right thing. Behavioral economist Richard Thaler and legal scholar Cass Sunstein have argued persuasively for choice architecture systems that make it easier for people to make good decisions consistent with their values and goals. For example, asking people to become organ donors when they renew a driver's license or register to vote, or having health insurance companies automatically schedule annual checkups for their members. These are things that most people mean to do, but put off because they are distracted by so many other more pressing demands. Retailers already use choice architecture to influence what you buy, although usually not for any noble purpose but to make a profit. If there were sufficient incentive, stores might more prominently feature healthy or environmentally friendly products. Instead of lining the checkout area with indulgent impulse purchases like candy and gossip magazines, stores could use that real estate to make it easier for people to pick up dental floss, condoms, or fresh fruit. This kind of simple product placement has been shown to dramatically increase healthy purchases. Choice architecture designed to manipulate people's decisions is a controversial proposition. Some see it as restricting individual freedom or ignoring personal responsibility. 
And yet, people who are free to choose anything most often choose against their long-term interests. Research on the limits of self-control suggests that this is not because we are innately irrational or because we are making deliberate decisions to enjoy today and screw tomorrow. Instead, we may simply be too tired to act against our worst impulses. If we want to strengthen self-control, we may need to think about how we can best support the most exhausted version of ourselves and not count on an ideal version of ourselves to show up and save the day. The Last Word The limits of self-control present a paradox. We cannot control everything, and yet the only way to increase our self-control is to stretch our limits. Like a muscle, our willpower follows the rule of use it or lose it. If we try to save our energy by becoming willpower couch potatoes, we will lose the strength we have. But if we try to run a willpower marathon every day, we set ourselves up for total collapse. Our challenge is to train like an intelligent athlete, pushing our limits but also pacing ourselves. And while we can find strength in our motivation when we feel weak, we can also look for ways to help our tired... Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to our content. Remember to follow us here on the platform. We prepared a graphic of the book with the author's key points and main ideas. Click that book graphic link in description now and have access to an illustrated material with simple and easy steps so you know everything about the book in minutes.